quick sound check. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Eggs and sardines and oysters. Eggs and sardines and oysters. You just throw that <laughs> and in a, broccoli. Just a little bit of broccoli. You just mm-hmm. throw it in a Vitamix. <laughs> <laughs> Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is it the perfect time? What if I did the I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers. That means that I interview people ranging from chess prodigies like Josh Waitzkin to celebrities and governators like Arnold Schwarzenegger to everything in between, whether those are athletes, scientists, military strategists, or otherwise. And this episode is a very fun one. It gets into the weeds. If you've loved the episodes with Dr. Peter Atia, for instance, or Pavel Tsatsoulin or others, you will most likely love this one. My guest is Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, better known as Dom. Most people refer to him as Dom. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida Morsani College of Medicine and a senior research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. And when I have questions about ketosis, about fasting, or about the deadlift, 
I call Dom. Why? Well, among other things, for instance, he has fasted for seven days and then deadlifted 500 pounds for 10 reps. He is a beast, both physically and intellectually. He has published or co-authored many different uh, fascinating papers, research papers. And no big surprise, he's a good buddy of Dr. Peter Tia, uh, whom I mentioned shortly ago. Now, Pete, of course, drinks so-called jet fuel in search of optimal athletic performance, sometimes ends up dry heaving in the kitchen, trying not to wake his family. And I enjoy these types of human guinea pigs, of course. The focus of Dom's laboratory primarily is developing and testing metabolic therapies, including ketogenic diets, ketone esters, and ketone supplements to induce nutritional and therapeutic ketosis. There is a lot more to it. Some of his research has been funded by the Office of Naval Research, Department of Defense, etc. He's a fascinating guy. If you are remotely interested in, say, cancer prevention or longevity or maximal performance, then this episode will touch on many, many cutting-edge aspects, theories, and practical implementations of research that is at the forefront right now. So please enjoy my conversation with Dom D'Agostino. Dom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Appreciate it. Of course. I have my notebook out always when I'm on the phone with you, walking around. I'm, I'm sort of struggling to find paper in my pockets or record notes, so I have all, all of my materials ready. I've spoken with our dear friend, Pete Atia, to sort of plot the, the, the arc of questions that I would ask you, mostly out of pure <laughs> self-interest. But for those people who are unfamiliar with you, when someone asks you, what do you do, how do you answer that question? Um, well, it depends on who it is, but I tell them, I try to be brief as possible. I just say I'm a scientist and I study, uh, nutritional neuroscience, I think is kind of how I like to phrase it as concisely as possible. And if you're talking to a fellow scientist, how would that answer change if at all? Uh, I would, I kind of go into kind of, uh, describing how I study uh, integrative uh, metabolic regulation and how what we eat or certain supplements can change our metabolic physiology to, you know, treat, prevent disease or enhance performance. Very cool. It's kind of sums up. Yeah. And speaking of speaking of performance, and this is a, a question I ask all of my guests, but what is the most you've ever deadlifted after fasting for seven days? <laughs> wow i imagine you get a range of responses from that <laughs> uh oh okay so you've talked to peter atia he's filled you in on that yeah so i guess going back when i really got interested in fasting i did a seven-day fast and uh it just happened to conclude uh right before i had to give a lecture kind of on the topic and uh, I went into it, you know, with my glucose in the mid, maybe 30s, low 40s, and my ketones up there at about five millimolar or so. Uh, and then I, I did go to the gym. Yeah, I, I deadlifted 500 for 10, and I uh, and I finished off with a one rep of 585 six blades. So that's I haven't done that since. I haven't done anything that extreme since. But I just felt like uh, I was inspired by George Cahill. Uh, he was a researcher at Harvard uh, Medical School, and uh, he did a fascinating study that uh, 
that really where he fasted people for 40 days actually and I've, I've delved into the literature studying that well I thought well I can do I can do seven days you know if these study subjects were IRB approved <laughs> <in six months. laughs> so uh, yeah I did that and I, I found you know the first three days were a little tough but and then I started cruising along but at day five and seven you know I was feeling my energy level was taking a dip for sure but it was I was amazingly resilient uh, you know, and I felt that had a lot to do with being in a state of fasting ketosis. And I was firmly convinced that, uh, and this is when I just started kind of studying this field. So I was doing a lot of blood work on myself too, to figure out what was happening. Um, what was the time, uh, what was the year roughly? When was this? Uh, this was 2010. Got it. I think going into, yeah, 2009 into 2010. So I'd been into this area of research for about, you know, a year or so in 2009. I really started, you know, getting research funding to do what I'm doing now. Um, it's, it's funny to me that uh, these subjects were able to be fasted for 40 days and everything got approved. But if you if you wanted to fast animals in certain circumstances, it seems like you can't go beyond one to three days. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's good. You know, I I serve on uh, the the University uh, Institute for Animal Care and Use Committee. It's called IACUC. It's just it's like the animal IRB. And uh, yeah, they they the committee usually has like a reactionary response to anything under 25% calorie restriction, you know, (laughs) and if they lose more than, you know, 20, 25% of their weight for a fat rodent, really, that's not much, you know, you have to, you can't, you can't do that anymore. You got to refeed them. So yeah, I am, I am amazed that some of the stuff, you know, got, got approved. I think the IRB was probably on vacation or something. Back then. <laughs> can you? Yeah, can, IRBs are a little different now. <laughs> can you uh, explain what IRB is or define that for people who aren't familiar with that? Yeah, it's the Institutional Review Board that uh, will review kind of the ethics and the safety of a study before signing off on it, essentially, and, and allowing. It's a committee of people that have kind of. Uh, uh, a broad range of expertise, and and they review the uh, the reason why the study is going to be done, the methodology, you know, the ethics, the the purpose, and all that stuff, and approve, you know, whether or not the study can be conducted. And it it really depends on what institute you're at. It you know you can use an outside IRB that's outside of the institution, and uh, you know companies do that, industry does that. Uh, but they, they can be a big hurdle and, and I found vastly different IRBs. Uh, you know, there's a small college about 10, 15 uh, minutes from here that ran a, a ketogenic diet study in advanced lifters for us. And the IRB was approved in like two weeks <laughs> uh, at which university. Is, which is Florida. fast. Very fast. Yeah. Like two or three weeks. So in other IRBs, I think I did one, a pharmacokinetic study for ketone esters, which uh, I'll probably talk more about later. But that one, I think it's been rejected somewhere about seven or eight times. And, uh, and it, I mean, it's just giving it as a single dose, kind of more or less a bioidentical molecule that our body makes. And the committee is just because it's quote unquote first in human, 
you know, it's it's very difficult. And and this is an outside IRB, which is less you know less uh, restrictive in many cases. So they can be a big hurdle to an investigator. Yeah, the uh, especially if if the twenty five percent or more loss is deemed cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> and, oh, okay, for the animal study, yeah. yeah so yeah. in uh, in yeah in these human studies, it's you know there's there's pretty uh, pretty stringent criteria on on the humans and stuff. So. What was the what was but the, yeah the it, the animal studies are pretty bad. What was this the uh, what was the study that you did on advanced lifters as it related to ketosis and what's what's kind of the abstract on that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's under review right now. Ah, uh, got it. And yeah, I'll, I'll give you kind of like the synopsis of it. So we had uh, 12 subjects and these were advanced uh, resistance trained individuals, meaning that they could squat and deadlift uh, and bench a certain percentage, you know, of their body weight, which is kind of puts them in the range of, you know, the top 10% uh, of, of lifters out there. Just out of curiosity. Uh, I got to go back. It was, it was. Some funky number, not like to, it was like you know 185 percent or 75 percent of their body weight squatting for you know seven reps or eight reps or something like that. It. So it was pretty. It would be uh, it would be like me. Let me see, squatting you know for 25 or something okay. for a set of six or something yeah, like these that. These are very. So it's pretty significant. Yeah, significantly advanced trainees. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, the gist of that is that we did a, a parallel. The control group was on a Western diet, and which is pretty similar to kind of you know moderate protein, higher in carbohydrates and, and moderate fat. And the ketogenic diet had roughly seventy-five to eighty percent fat, restricted carbohydrates to about twenty to twenty-five grams per day. And, um, and the fat was also supplemented to some extent with MCT oil and coconut oil and all the subjects, it was two weeks. They had to be on the diet and had to confirm ketone levels by blood and urine. And once they did, we only did a two week adaptation, which is kind of another subject we could talk about, but they adapted for two weeks and then kind of trained the heck out of them. And every workout was done in the lab in a human, uh, performance laboratory um, and every everything was recorded the volume was controlled all the parameters were controlled uh, blood work was done and uh, the, the take home on it was that strength you know body composite or I would say strength and performance were maintained and increased and there was muscle hypertrophy was seen with a ketogenic diet and uh, there was similar increases yeah in power in hypertrophy and the big the big difference was kind of the overall body composition was more favorable in the ketogenic diet group, meaning they had similar increases in lean body mass, but they lost proportionally more fat. And uh, that's the study that we completed. It's under review right now. Uh, the first journal kicked it back. So we went in for another journal what, and did some follow-up work with it. Now, what is your uh, what is your hypothesis, or maybe you already know, but how would you explain the maintenance or even development of hypertrophy and power in the ketogenic group when a lot of people associate, say, insulin uh, with different growth factors and whatnot. And I, I had a conversation, I want to say it was with uh, Stephen Finney, very short conversation, and I asked him this because I'd been in a ketotic state for two or three weeks and had experienced 
uh, a, a non-trivial amount of muscle growth, and I was really surprised by it. And uh, he explained in terms that I, I can't recall, but how the ketogenic might, diet might have a, I guess, a, like a branch chain amino acid sparing effect of some type. But is it possible to get very big and uh, powerful mm-hmm. on a ketogenic diet? And if so, what's the mechanism in the sort of absence of higher spiking insulin levels? Mm-hmm. If that is the parent anabolic yeah. hormone, and I'm not saying it is, but a lot of people view it that way. Yeah. So, you know, there's insulin and insulin signaling, right? Uh, certain diet, like when you calorie restrict a rodent or even, you know, humans or any mammal, they, you will enhance insulin sensitivity, right? right? So you will be more more sensitive to a given amount of insulin. Uh, and I think we're seeing some of that in, in the athletes. I mean, exercise itself is, you know, enhances insulin sensitivity. So in, in guys that are uh, advanced lifters who've been at it for like 10 years may have a different response to a ketogenic diet than say a 15 year old kid, you know, who's trying to bulk up for football, you know, he would probably not be a good candidate for, uh, for the ketogenic diet. You know, your sensitivity to things like IGF one and insulin are much higher when you're younger in your teenage years, especially. So you could compromise a lot of your potential development and strength if you're younger in doing that. But if, you know, say guys, the older we get, the less, carbohydrate tolerant we get. So we lose, you know, our ability to kind of process carbs as we get older and our insulin sensitivity declines. Uh, now, it's going back to your question, as it relates to being on a ketogenic diet, we know that ketones are anti-catabolic. You know, that's why we right. can fast for 40 days. And the ketones have an anti-catabolic protein sparing effect. And if our, our blood is flooded with ketones, we're less likely to liberate gluconeogenic amino acids from our skeletal muscle for fuel because the ketones can more or less replace glucose as the primary energy energy substrate to maintain your central nervous system, which is, you know, like 3% of our body by weight, but sucks up like 20 or 25% of the energy. It's a big metabolic engine. So the ketones kind of drive a lot of that substrate, you know, energy need. Uh, so in, in a situation where you're at a at a caloric deficit i think that's where ketones can shine you know if you're trying to make weight if you're trying to preserve or even increase your performance and strength you know and and alter your body composition so if i don't think the ketogenic diet is ideal if your goal is maximum uh a purely ketogenic diet i think you know there's different we have to kind of figure out what ketogenic diet we're talking about. (laughs) But I don't think a purely ketogenic diet, as it's kind of uh, described in the literature, right, a 90 or 85% fat diet is an ideal diet for growth and repair. Uh, The diet that we use in our study is actually a little higher in protein, like 25% protein, which is like really almost double that used by the you know, by the Johns Hopkins group that developed the classical ketogenic diet. And it's really that that protein level is important. So growing on a classic ketogenic diet would be pretty hard. I mean, kids do it. Their growth rates are a little bit less, you know, uh, with these kids that have uh, drug-resistant seizures when they're put on the diet. But if you simply just do what's called a modified Atkins, and there's a lot of literature coming out now on the modified Atkins. Eric, Kossoff at Johns Hopkins 
He's a colleague of mine and more in the clinical realm. And he's done a lot of work showing that a modified Atkins, which is about 70% fat and like 20 or 30% protein, is uh, has the same sort of ability f- to metabolically manage seizures. And I think that sort of diet can be used pretty successfully in the performance world and specifically for bodybuilders. I think with that amount of protein, you'd be able to grow muscle for sure. And it's calories too, right? I mean, calories are the driver, your caloric intake. If you have a surplus amount of calories, you're more likely to push insulin up mm-hmm. and, and drive anabolic processes. Uh, but a lot of times people, when they follow a ketogenic diet, because ketones have a really good appetite suppressant effect that they will inadvertently restrict calories and, and may not even know it after a while and, uh, and maybe losing weight without even trying. And that's, I mean, that's one of the benefits, I guess you could say, of the ketogenic diet. You can lose weight and you can alter your body composition without necessarily even trying just through the appetite suppressing effect. And the let's uh, let's define a few terms for folks who may be outsiders to this world. Uh, I mean, you're talking about ketosis. Uh, let's define ketosis. What what is ketosis? Let's. Uh, I guess we could, could talk about nutritional uh, and sort of fasting ketosis. But what what is ketosis exactly? And what are ketones? Okay. Uh, I kind of like to start out with fasting, right? Sure. So Perfect. we're, if we're on a normal diet and we stop eating all of a sudden, um, we will mobilize and use up our stored glycogen, mostly in the liver, right? And, uh, our central nervous system more or less demands that we have a steady fuel supply to our brain. And in the absence of glucose availability, uh, we'll be depleting our, our liver glycogen, the insulin levels will be suppressed and we'll start mobilizing fatty acids for fuel. But fatty acids, long-chain fatty acids, don't cross the blood-brain barrier very efficiently. So the liver, uh, in, in while you're suppressing the hormone insulin, you'll upregulate beta-oxidation of fatty acids in the liver. And an accumulation of, of products from fatty acid oxidation will start forming ketone bodies. And these ketone bodies are... They're more or less like water-soluble fat molecules, that, and they're small molecules that can readily cross uh, the blood-brain barrier and get inside cells into the mitochondria. And uh, as we fast, within about 24 to 48 hours, we'll start registering ketones to the level that clinically is defined as being in ketosis, which is ask you know, above that. 0.5 millimolar, typically. Yeah, so a person on a, a high-carb diet would probably take about 24 to 48 hours to start even getting into mild ketosis. And But fasting is the fastest way to get into ketosis. And that's why if you have a child with drug-resistant seizures and they're administered or they're, uh, they're admitted into uh, uh, a place like Johns Hopkins, the, the old protocol was to fast them. Uh, they, they're not exactly sure if that's absolutely necessary with things like uh, more with ketogenic diets have MCTs and stuff. But you can um, – fasting has classically been the fastest way to get into ketosis. So the ketogenic diet has a macronutrient ratio uh, that's high in fat, typically 90 And, ma- and to by macronutrients, 70. we're referring to protein, fat, carbohydrates. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
and uh, maybe ketones could be the fourth macronutrient, maybe, <laughs> if you talk about exogenous ketones. Right, but, right. Uh, so a ketogenic diet has a macronutrient ratio that, that mimics the metabolic physiology that you have when you're fasting. So if you were to take the blood out of someone, you know, do a blood sample of someone on a strict ketogenic diet, it would look like they're fasting, like they've, they've been fasting a few days. And it's that that allows you to get some – that changes your physiology incredibly. Like your metabolic physiology changes acutely and then there's, there's long-term changes that occur with that, uh, epigenetic changes. You know, we know that, that beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone body, can have a, a, in, you know, interesting effects on gene expression. What types of effects? Uh, well, there was a science paper showing that uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate is an HDAC, class 1 and class 2 inhibitor, and can activate genes that play a role in enhancing uh, endogenous antioxidant mechanisms, specifically superoxide dismutase and catalase. So these, these mechanisms, when they're upregulated, it confers protection against the environment. It, it sort of enhances our cellular defense mechanisms. It uh, enhances the robust kind of protective mechanisms that the cell has that can preserve the genome stability. So maybe being in a state of ketosis and maintaining that can protect your DNA from damage. So that's the implications. Um, also anti-inflammatory. So we, we published a a paper, uh, our colleagues actually did it at Yale. Uh, I developed the diet for them and sent it up to them. It was exogenous ketone. But the paper demonstrated that it, it uh, activated or prevented the activation of a particular inflammasome that's, that's linked to age-related chronic diseases. So it inhibited, inhibited a specific inflammatory pathway. Way that is really associated with all chronic age-related diseases, and it was independent of the ketones' effect on metabolism. So huh. they teased out, <laughs> they uh, did a lot of studies to tease out the mechanism and and demonstrated that that the effect of it, you know, suppressing in this inflammatory pathway, um, was uh, completely independent of its metabolic effect. So we understand that, you know, when I got into this, I just knew that ketones were an energy metabolite. So now we know it's much more than a metabolite. You know, it's an, it's an HDAC inhibitor. And the, how do you spell that? I apologize. The HDAC. Oh yeah. A histone deacetylase inhibitor. So HDAC would be HDAC. Got it. And then there's class one, two, three, I think four. So class one and two, uh, HDAC inhibitors are a big, big, uh, of are of big interest to the pharmaceutical industry. So there are many, for example, we do a lot of cancer research. There's a lot of pharmaceutical uh, companies focusing on uh, histone deacetylase inhi- inhibitors for as targeting specific pathways to, right. for cancer therapy. So so you have an endogenous HDAC inhibitor, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with beta hydroxybutyrate. Not not to interrupt, but just for people who want to keep endogenous and exogenous straight, I've always found thinking of exoskeleton as sort of outside uh, as, the, as an yeah. indicator of outside. So if you're taking exogenous, please correct me if I'm getting this if I screw this up in any way, Dom. But if you're taking mm-hmm. exogenous ketones, that means you are you are uh, 
consuming ketones from outside of your body, and endogenous is something you're producing yourself. Yes. Uh, the, right. So, so in, in a case, for instance, with um, cancer, I have uh, a friend who recently went through chemotherapy, and he would fast for three days prior to his chemotherapy. And in the same group, almost everyone was... Uh, aside from him, everyone else was laid out for days after chemotherapy, really unable to function. And he was able to go for 10 mile runs, for instance. Um, and uh, it's been, it's been, I've been very fascinated by looking at the implications of combining fasting with, uh, for instance, you know, chemotherapy and the treatment of cancer. Um, does, if, if you were say advising someone with a, her, uh, family history of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which I have. So I don't know if those fall into the age related, uh, issues that you were talking about, but are there implications for fasting or, um, nutritional ketosis or exogenous ketones for helping to prevent or mitigate the onset of those type of neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah. And, you know, fasting has to be done, <clears throat> you know, under you have to know your body right and fasting should probably be done uh under pretty strict medical supervision sure to some extent yeah so someone would have to do a little research on it uh and and it would depend on you know the particular person if so if you have a cancer patient that it's a, a woman with breast cancer say and she has a bmi of 28 you know, and, and it's going in for chemo, I think it's a good idea for them to fast before so they go in. BMI, but if you have body, someone, ma- body mass oh, index. Oh, body mass index, so that would, yeah. That, and that would make her obese? I actually don't know kind of the scale uh, of BMI. Yeah, that would make her kind of a little pudgy, I guess, and, and yeah. have some, some extra weight to lose. So so uh, we, we know that getting chemo in, in a fasted state there's a couple reports out there showing that it could uh, it sensitizes uh, it can sensitize the the tumor to the um, therapeutic effects of the agents and also uh, there's some evidence showing that uh, that it could prevent some of the side effects associated with chemotherapeutic agents uh, specifically things that you know cause cell damage. So so being in a state of fasting ketosis can sensitize the tumor to the damaging effects of the chemo and and enhance your healthy cells resistance against the toxic effects of, of the of the uh, chemotherapeutic agent. So that's and you'd want to do it. I think you know the majority of patients could probably do it, but if you have someone with severe cancer cachexia, muscle wasting uh, you'd want to do it in a very cautious way, but I, I definitely think you know this. This is something that should be implemented, you know, in our in our oncology wards. Yeah, that uh, fasting before chemo uh, definitely has some real benefits that what? we should be utilizing. No, it's it's so fascinating, and it's so cachexia. Man, you are a treasure trove of vocabulary. So is that the is that the uh, is that acute? muscle loss as opposed to like sarcopenia, which would be the, I'm not up to speed on my Latin, which would be sort of the muscle loss attributed to aging or what is cachexia? Yeah. So cachexia would be defined as, um, uh, actually investigators are trying to get a clear definition of it and, and understanding of it, which our lab, I have one of my students is just studies cancer cachexia. Uh, 
cachexia is defined as in cancer as uh, you're in a a physiological state where your body is releasing factors like uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha and inflammatory cytokines that inflammatory mediators that are catabolizing your muscle tissue, your lean body mass. And just, I apologize. I just want to, for people who are, are uh, unfamiliar with the vo- vocab. So, so anabolism would be building tissue in general and catabolism would be breaking down tissue. Is that fair? Or is it uh, exactly like okay. anabolic steroids are building and catabolic processes are the breaking down okay. of things. So great. you're sorry to interrupt. Oh no, that's great. So you're, yeah, you're in a state where you're, you're basically wasting lean body mass. You're wasting, uh, you know, uh, tissue and a lot of cancer patients succumb to cancer cachexia and its mortality is is closely intimately related to that. So as you lose lean body mass from being in a state, say, for example, if someone has advanced metastatic cancer, that they will, their survival will be tightly correlated with, with that, the ability to preserve their lean body mass and maintain their function. And in a lot of situations, you get, you get this situation where you have an older patient that gets cancer, like 70-year-old, and you have age-related sarcopenia, right? They're already losing muscle, right. uh, compounded with <laughs> cancer cachexia, which increases lean body mass loss due to the, the pathology, on top of chemo-induced cachexia. Oh, so wow. chemotherapy is a pretty powerful destructive agent to lean body mass on top of <laughs> uh, inactivity, so being immobilized. So you have age-related sarcopenia, cancer cachexia, chemo-induced cachexia, and this typically, you know, you have a patient that's bedridden, so they're not stimulating their muscle with activity. So you have four factors coming together that cause uh, a mat- like a perfect storm for you to just kind of waste away. And patients can go down so fast when, um, when they're put in that situation. So I think, uh, so we're developing protocols to nutritional, you know, nutritional ketosis. We're looking at branched chain amino acid formulas. Uh, and we're, we want to do some work with, uh, to define specifically what types of exercise can mitigate all these factors and maybe some drugs and stuff too, uh, we're interested in testing. So yeah, I think that's, that's not really being studied much. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of investigators out there studying this. And I've been in touch with a lot of patients and I realized that this is key. Like I think a lot of patients would be alive today if we had, uh, effective ways to mitigate. Cause once they lose their mobility, once they get weak enough where they just can't move around, I mean, their whole psychology just deteriorates. I would imagine. You know, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of reasons that we should be looking into keeping patients as strong uh, and preserving their muscle as much as possible. Is, you know? is, is, are there any, uh, knowledgeable folks out there? I was going to say scientists or researchers, but we both know a lot of folks who don't operate in the more formal worlds. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, are, are there people out there who have, who believe that there's a role of anabolic agents, whether steroids or otherwise in th- those types of circumstances with say cancer patients. Um, and I don't, the, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts just because we, uh, there are also a lot of people who are trying to say minimize IGF one, 
uh, among mm-hmm. other things for longevity purposes, uh, or even yeah. for anti-cancer purposes. But how do you, how do you think about that? Or how do other people think about that? Well, I, I think it's a little outside of mainstream, uh, cancer kind of, uh, world that sure. I'm linked in with, but I think it should be. And I think, you know, we want to develop a pretty solid, uh, program here in our lab to, to look into this. Uh, when it comes to anabolic agents, I think, you know, you go to the literature and it shows that anabolic steroids do not promote within, within certain dosing levels. They do not promote the growth and the spread of cancer. Uh, pretty sure the literature says that there are, uh, specific androgen receptor modulators out there. They're called Mm -hmm. SARMs and there's a few SARMs. Yeah. SARMs that are out there. They basically have, they're designed to have the anabolic tissue building potency of, of testosterone and other anabolic steroids without the androgenic or the hormone effect. Right. And uh, they are actually developed specifically for cancer cachexia. Oh, really? So there's a few out there. Yeah, there's there's actually a few out there, and I think you know we're kind of interested in studying them. Uh, we're looking at branched chain amino acids right now, which we think are are pretty uh, important too. Uh, uh, but if you give so testosterone, for example, and a lot of males take testosterone to build muscle in the gym for you know hormone replacement therapy. If you administer testosterone, and the studies have been done, up to a certain point, once you get to about 300 milligrams uh, per week, uh, say, you start to increase systemic IGF-1 levels. And if you go up to about 600 milligrams a week, which would put you at a supraphysiological level about twice or three times that of a normal male, at least, uh, that causes the liver to increase IGF-1 release. So systemic IGF-1 will go up. But a dosage of, say, 100 to 200 milligrams a week uh, does not increase, to my knowledge, uh, uh, factors, uh, hormones, uh, growth factors that would uh, cause cancer to grow and spread. And I think at that dosage, especially with a lot of male cancer patients, that, that would have a pretty remarkable protein-sparing effect. And we know that, you know, anabolic agents can be life-saving drugs for HIV patients. Absolutely. For yeah, patients for with wasting, wasting diseases. Yeah, I mean, they can, you know, just look at the literature and you talk, you know, if you talk to, um, to the uh, physicians and the doctors that treat their patients that are familiar with these agents and know how to uh, intelligently prescribe them and administer them, they will tell you that, you know, they, they, they save lives. So, and I, and I think that application may be, um, maybe useful in cancer. So, but I think the SARMs are are kind of an interesting, um, compound that's coming out. And I think there's, there's some, definitely some potential for some drugs out there. Now is the advantage of SARM, uh, a SARM over say a high anabolic, low androgenic, uh, steroid, uh, like, uh, like a nandrolone or a oxandrolone, for instance, which is very popular with, 
uh, HIV patients who are trying to increase their T cell count and avoid muscle wasting is the primary advantage of the SARM that it doesn't have the stigma associated with it of anabolic steroids? Is that, is it primarily kind of a political advantage that it doesn't carry that baggage or are there other metabolic reasons to use it as opposed to just standard kind of, yeah. you know, anabolic agents that are, that are low androgenic. Uh, and just so, so, so people mm-hmm. understand and please feel correct me if I'm screwing this up, but just for, for people to understand the context, when people talk about anabolic steroids, they're, they're usually talking about anabolic androgenic steroids, right? And that and in so much as they have anabolic, i.e. tissue building, muscle building effects, and then they have androgenic effects, which can, uh, can ex- accelerate the development of secondary sex characteristics, whether that's like a, a square jaw male characteristics or a, uh, you know, deeper voice in the development of the vocal cords, more hair, acne, et cetera, that kind of stuff. So in the case of someone with, say, a wasting disease, particularly if they are uh, female instead of male, they will want to minimize the androgenic effects because they don't want to become men or become cavemen and maximize the muscle building effects in this particular case. Um, is that a fair mm-hmm. is that a fair description? Feel free to add or, or edit anything that I just said, but I'd be curious to hear sort of the advantage of SARM, SARMs over pre-existing low androgenic anabolic therapies. Yeah, okay. So SARMs are designed uh, with the intention in mind to minimize the androgenic component down to nothing. You know, that that's right. really the goal. Uh, and I think they're pretty close to doing that. <laughs> the, pro- the problem is I don't – in the real world, when you read about guys taking this for muscle building, they have very kind of minimal anabolic properties compared to their uh, anabolic steroid counterparts or cousins uh but the the advantage is you know is that uh if you have a guy with prostate cancer or all males you know probably get prostate cancer uh in in time so uh you can high testosterone could drive the, the growth of your prostate and prostate cancer uh and and anabolic steroids uh could obviously have major side effects for women. I mean, we see this in women's bodybuilding, right? Uh, we see the side effects are pretty real and, and pretty non-reversible. So a, a selective androgen receptor modulator can have the advantage of, you know, potentially uh, giving the protein-sparing anabolic properties uh, of, of the agents, you know, without, uh, without the side effects. So there's not there's research going on, but it's it's I don't think it's moving as fast as what we had initially anticipated as far as them being super potent uh, anabolic agents that would make anabolic steroids obsolete. Got it. <laughs> so um, they're not at that level yet, but there's quite a few pharmaceutical companies working on it, and agents are there's studies going on right now, and I think that data will probably come out in the next couple of years. Yeah. I want to chat with you separately about how to marshal resources to do a lot more studies. Cause I just, it's so frustrating to see these attractive targets or hypotheses that just for lack of funding, particularly with technology and sort of the ability to do distrib- uh, distributed studies potentially. Anyway, you and I'll uh, mm-hmm. chat more about that, but in, in the case yeah. coming back to the chemotherapy, cause I, I, I love looking at 
cancer in sort of extreme states because I think then you can you can form hypotheses and test in those circumstances and then adapt findings to test in normal populations, which would, uh, you know, I suppose I would include myself in that, although <laughs> normal is kind of pushing it. Uh, the, is it possible or to what extent is it possible to mimic the benefits of fasting pre chemotherapy with exogenous ketones? Yeah. So I think we can view exogenous ketones or, an energy-containing substance, right? So you could potentially take them as a source of energy. Right. Uh, they're energy that your liver only produces under certain circumstances of what's considered uh, kind of strange metabolic physiology, like a fasted right. state. Duress or a, of some yeah. type, yeah. Uh, so, so the ability, and you know, we're interested in, in doing this, the ability to... Um, to admit, to elevate to produce an artificial state of ketosis uh, is possible with exogenous ketones, and it mimics many many effects of therapeutic fasting, which would be uh, an acute and sustained reduction in blood glucose. And we don't really know why there's a, a remarkable decrease in blood glucose. That's a dose dependent decrease, but it, it seems to do seems to be related to the liver's uh, output of glucose. So your liver is a master regulator of your blood glucose, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, so the the drug metformin uh, in type two diabetics will decrease hepatic gluconeogenesis. So right. the liver's ability to to make glucose and, and put it into the bloodstream. We we think that that ketones are doing this also. Uh, and I think maybe it's kind of telling the body, hey, you're in a fasted state, so why don't you conserve the glucose that you have? And and also a big dose of ketones could potentially cause a small release of insulin. And uh, that's kind of how we regulate our, our, our endogenous ketone production is that if our ketone levels get too high, that, that ketone will cause a very tiny release of insulin from the pancreas and that will signal the liver to kind of turn down or turn off uh, hepatic ketogenesis. And it's a, you know, we have, when we're in a state of ketosis, we lose ketones through our urine, we burn them up through peripheral tissues, and if they get really high, we stimulate a small amount of insulin release. Uh, what is really so, high on a millimolar basis? as measured by like a precision extra device from Abbott, which is what I have six feet for me, which I've been using. What would, what would, uh, how high do your ketone levels need to get before that insulin gets kicked out? Of course it depends on the person, mm -hmm. but roughly speaking. Yeah, I think it's pretty rare to see over five millimolar in kids, you know, uh, with kids that have a disorder called glucose transporter type one deficiency syndrome, uh, I'm in touch with their parents and they routinely stay in the three to five millimolar range. But typically that's rare. They have to be on a really strict ketogenic diet. Um, but typically, yeah, getting above five is kind of abnormal. And sometimes, you know, if I'm measuring, sometimes I'll just hit a peak. You know, it's kind of like your hormones. They're kind of going to fluctuate throughout the day. So if you measure and you hit seven, I wouldn't panic or anything. I mean, because it's probably a little peak that you're getting. Uh, yeah, but yeah, or your, or your you know, doing a cycling workout. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there's that, you know, you have post-exercise ketosis where guys that are on a high-carb diet after four or five, six hours of intense exercise, they're going to deplete their liver glycogen and ramp up fatty acid oxidation so high that they're, they're naturally just going to be in ketosis. So they're, their body is used to seeing ketones, you know, because of the exercise that they do. Uh, but generally, yeah, I mean, like, like moderate to mild ketosis is kind of what I like to promote for health and longevity. And that's between one and three millimolar. If you're within that range, that's a range that you'll like pretty much never get into if you're not on a ketogenic diet, or not fasting. And I think staying in that range has some real world benefits as far as, uh, you know, health benefits, longevity benefits, performance, resilience. I think there's some real world benefits to staying in that, that range. And I, you'd be hard pressed to find any potential adverse effects that could be, you know, uh, uh, like linked to having ketones in that range. But once you get into five, six millimolar range, that that produces a metabolic, a mild metabolic acidosis that needs to be compensated for through your kidneys. Right. And, you know, so it is putting a stress. It's it's a substrate load to your, your system and your body's got to deal with that. So I think, you know, that, that needs to be taken into account. How How do you currently... Well, actually, let me let me ask a couple of questions just because I'm in the middle of doing some ketosis experiments myself with exogenous ketones. So I have two jugs of uh, exogenous ketones in my fridge. Then I have okay. uh, some powdered beta hydroxy beta hydroxybutyrate, which is, I guess, the well, most people read it as keto kana, the C A and N A, which I guess is what mm. calcium. Potassium? Am I getting that right? Screen that uh, Calcium, sodium. Yeah. Jesus. Ah, Ferris. <laughs> so bad. Anyway, I try. I try hard. I'm like Avis. Uh, the, so I have the powdered, uh, the, the powdered beta-hydroxybutyrate. If I use that when I'm trying to induce ketosis, right? So let's, for instance, this past week, I ate a low-carb but still glucose-dependent uh, diet f- up until Friday night, and then I fasted from Friday after dinner until Sunday evening. And now I'm squarely into ketosis. I'm probably at 1.1, 1.2 millimolars, I would say, uh, upon waking. How could I use, can I accelerate the, induc- the induction of my own ketone production by? through use of exogenous ketones, or am I just temporarily spiking my readings when I'm ingesting these things and really my body is going to get to its sort of steady state 1.1, 1.2 in the same amount of time regardless? Does that question make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think there are significant advantages to uh, speeding up the process uh, as far as how you feel. And I think that there's if you transition from a state of using glucose as your primary energy source to using ketones, that usually involves a gap in uh, fuel flow to your brain. Yeah, so you feel your brain grumpy and would, shitty. <laughs> yeah, you go. You have glucose withdrawal. I mean, your brain go, goes through glucose 
withdrawal. And it uses glucose to not only for energy, but to make, you know, uh, neurotransmitters to your brain homeostasis is, you know, your glucose levels are, are basically telling your brain that it's, you know, at a, in, in, it's happy. It's in a homeostatic state. So if you feed your, your body, your brain ketones, it is preserving more or less that, uh, neurophysiological homeostasis, I think. And you're not going to have a, um, maybe a stress reaction. Uh. So if, if you, um, fast and this is you know subjects that just kind of go cold turkey and fast within the first 24 hours they you know it's a stress response their cortisol level spikes they your sympathetic nervous system is activated uh their immune system could be suppressed uh and i think that if you were to do the same thing but use exogenous ketones you would cruise into a state of nutritional ketosis sustain nutritional ketosis without some of the 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 bumps along the way Got and it. i think that you could probably reap some of the the performance benefits and i think it maybe be and then but then you could you know you may make the argument that that stress that physiological stress that you're giving yourself is you know you're familiar with the hormetic effect yeah <laughs> that that stress could be kicking on mechanisms that when activated can kind of, you know, be protective in and of itself. Yeah. You or know? beneficial I, in some way, right? That's like when, when people were taking ibuprofen after workouts or other anti-inflammatories and reducing subsequent hypertrophy, right? From yeah, inhibiting yeah. the sort of pain that was uh, unpleasant in the short term, but beneficial in the longer term. Yeah, where, you know, in the, the case of NSAIDs, if you're, you dose them right after your workout, maybe those inflammatory mediators are linked to activating the signaling cascades that are responsible for the hypertrophy effect. Right, you know? right. So you could be, could be negati- negating that effect. But we have not shown that to be the case. Actually, I think, I think you could get a lot of benefit. You could uh, – I, I see it as not one or the other. Like I think the ketogenic diet actually goes pretty well with exogenous ketones, and one would not have to be on such a strict ketogenic diet because it is very restrictive. It is, and you could do like a modified Atkins, which is kind of the, the way I think we should eat anyway. <laughs> I mean, just eliminating all processed carbohydrates and just you know protein, fat, veggies is kind of how I eat, and I pretty much always stay in a state of ketosis just by using MCTs, like a little bit of exogenous ketones here and there. Uh, and I think it would allow us to optimize the therapeutic effects of the ketogenic diet and, and probably further augment the therapeutic efficacy if we're talking about the clinical realm and maybe, maybe further augment the performance-enhancing effects of mm-hmm. the ketogenic diet too. And I think that's, that's possible. Um, but a lot of people just want something in a pill. And we kind of we did that study. Well, we're we're doing those studies now, and we are. Uh, I'm a big fan of the ketogenic diet, and I'm actually pretty impressed and and even not shocked as in a world, but I, I, we're getting we're getting results better than I expected just by giving pure ketones. Then I, I thought the that you would need a level of adaptation to being in a state of nutritional ketosis to get the benefits from exogenous ketones. And that's, that's not the case. We yeah. showed that really in our first study. Now, is that true even in the presence of 
higher carbohydrate intake or higher protein intake? Yeah, it is in our animal models, and we think it is in humans right now. So we have some studies uh, approved. We're going to be looking at that in, in humans, uh, looking at the metabolic effects. But uh, kind of the first study that we did in, is a rat study where we, we did uh, uh, an acute feeding well, it's kind of a gavage, so we kind of give them a, a bolus dose. And these are rats that are maintained on a high-carbohydrate standard rodent chow. And they've never been in a state of ketosis before, you know, unless they were deprived of food or something, which which is they probably weren't. So they've never really seen uh, ketones before. And in this uh, study that we did, uh, we acutely, you know, gave them uh, – a ketone ester, and within about 15 minutes to 30 minutes, they achieved a level of ketosis that would take about seven days of fasting for a human. They were in the four to five millimolar range. And in the, bo- uh, the, the bolus was, a, I mean, a, a high dose single. Yeah, um, ketone ester. And what yep. was what was the ketone ester? Uh, it was. You, you want the chemical name? <laughs> it was. Or, or, uh, maybe I should maybe I should take a different approach. What is a, for, for people listening, what is oh. a ketone ester? Okay, uh, so your body makes, you know, primarily two ketones that it uses for fuel. One is acetoacetate, and another is beta-hydroxybutyrate. And uh, they're both kind of interchangeable, and they're converted to one another uh, in the body. Uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate actually has to break down to acetoacetate, you know, to be used for energy. Uh, but the beta-hydroxybutyrate tends to be the primary, uh, the highest level, you know, primary ketone in our body just because it's more stable. So, but it does need to break down to acetoacetate. So a ketone ester is taking one of these, acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate or both, and taking those molecules and attaching it to something <laughs> and with an ester bond that functions as like more or less a carrier to it. So you can esterify a ketone with a wide range of things. Uh, you could use glycerol. You can use, we use what, something called 1,3-butanediol. And you can attach ketone molecules to this with a trans-esterification reaction. And when it's ingested in the body, there's various enzymes we have, hydrolytic enzymes that will, uh, esterases that will break off the ketone and you'll get uh, when you ingest it orally, you will start to liberate the ketones from the molecule that it's esterified with, and these will build up in your blood. And the idea, right, is to have a molecule that you know slowly releases the ketones in a very predictable fashion, where you get a nice pharmacokinetic profile. You know, where you have, you know, you can take it orally, and then within ten to fifteen minutes, you're in starvation ketosis, and then you stay in ketosis for you know, six, eight, 12 hours is ideal. And it depends on, you know, the molecule you're talking about. So that, that's kind of what we're doing now. We're kind of screening various compounds to figure out which ones have a favorable pharmacokinetic profile in isolation. And then we start combining them together so we can get, you know, formulas where we hit the ideal, you know, formula for a particular application. So a ketone ester, yeah, is a ketone that, is orally active, so you can take it, and it can increase blood ketone levels 
in, in the rat study that I was describing, they are quickly put into ketosis. And then in the, that particular study, we would dive them in a hyperbaric chamber and increase the pressure and the level of oxygen within the chamber. So it would be, it would simulate a Navy SEAL diving down to 132 feet of seawater, breathing 100% oxygen on a, and a, a rebreather that they use called a Drager rebreather. Yeah. Uh, and, the oxygen. and the purpose of that, of course, is so that they don't give away location by having bubbles come out of their system. That, yeah, so right? there's a, definitely a stealth component to a closed circuit rebreather. Um, if you're using it and you're in the middle of a pond in the middle of the jungle and it's perfectly quiet, like you would not know the person's under there. Whereas if you're using standard scuba, you would see a bubble trail coming across the pond at you, you know, and you could just, you could just sit there patiently and wait till they come out and shoot them. (laughs) So with a, with a rebreather, there is a, a a big advantage, a stealth component. Uh, the disadvantage is obviously, you know, if you go down to just 50 feet of seawater, uh, you're at the risk of getting what's called oxygen toxicity seizures within like 15, 10 or 15 minutes. Wow. Just at 50 feet. So you have to stay very shallow and which is not always hard to do during a mission. If you have, you know, helicopters over you and they can see you in the water or you're taking fire, you're, you gotta, you gotta dive down the plan of mine on a bridge or a ship. Uh, it's not always easy to do. So we develop these things for, you know, providing resilience and safety and, and performance. Now, when you uh, say develop these things, you're talking about the exogenous ketones. Yeah, that's they're developed. You know, originally with that application in mind, with uh, with yeah. sort of a, a defense application in mind, a military application, and that's that's how my project originally got started. Uh, like def- so, and because you've done, yeah, you've you've had studies funded by the Department of Defense and so on. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That was the original idea for this was uh, I got turned on to the ketogenic diet because it was used for drug-resistant seizures. And my program officer, uh, I ran the idea by him and he didn't really like the idea of a diet per se. I mean, his attitude of the diet for performance has changed you know, over the years. But he was like, well, let's, you know, why don't you kind of look into developing a ketogenic diet in a pill and see if that's even possible. So I spent, and that was like 2008. And then that kind of started my journey into seeing if this was possible. And when we tested it in our, in our rat model, uh, you know, I remember the first time we did it, we, you know, fed the rat and put them in there and we typically see a seizure in about 10 to 15 minutes. And we're standing around the chamber and we have a video camera system and a little window port. And we're standing there and it's like 30 minutes has gone by 40 minutes and we're up to an hour and everybody's just kind of like looking at one another. This is unbelievable. (laughs) I wasn't getting excited. I was like, okay, calm down, calm down. This could be like a a major outlier or something. And then every single rat we've ever done, and we've done many rats, you know, every single rat has gone way beyond the control to where the average is that it can resist oxygen toxicity, uh, 575%. And that sort of blows away any anti-convulsant drug out there. Yeah. <laughs> so similar to the ketogenic diet, right? If you go to the Charlie Foundation website, you know, the Charlie Foundation was set up, you know, working with Johns Hopkins yeah. University is for kids with drug-resistant seizures. And, and the studies published 
the original studies by John Freeman uh, published showed that in kids that have failed all standard of care, all even combinations of like six anti-seizure drugs, when they're put on the ketogenic diet, two-thirds of those kids have you know, seizure control, like remarkable seizure control. And a percentage of them, like a third of them have absolutely no seizures, like or like 95% reduction in seizures. So it made sense. So I, I was actually thinking that, well, the original study design was to feed ketone esters for a week and then dive them. But uh, my source was only making like a little bit at a time. <laughs> and uh, the, the chemist that I got to make the product for me. So I had, you know, little tiny vials of it. And I was like, well, and I was just kind of impatient. And I was like, instead of getting enough to feed it for a week, I was like, let's just try to give it one dose and see what happens. And when it worked, it was just, we were just blown away. So uh, we did like three or four rats. And I was like, okay, I'm convinced. Like completely unscientific, right? I mean, because, you know, you usually got to do like in, you know, 12 and do stats and everything and do controls. But I was complete because we, we dove like four rats and they all went way beyond, yeah. you know, any other rat we've ever seen. So I was like, I have to move on this fast or someone's going to kind of take this idea or something. I was like, we got to, we got to move on this uh, finding as fast as possible. Well, it seems, it seems also, I mean, uh, and just, just like my, my ridiculous potassium instead of sodium remark earlier, definitely club, like verbally club me over the head if I, do anything like that. But, uh, it, it seems like I mean, when you're evaluating the statistical significance of a given study, the sort of s- civilians, like non-scientists will say, Oh, well, how big was your sample size? And it's like, Oh, it was six or 10. They're like, Oh, well it's, that's so small, you know, kind of, and they'll say it should be a hundred or it should be a thousand. And they really don't know uh, about science, and I'm, I should probably put myself in that category too. But if you have a huge magnitude of effect that is consistent across a, a smaller subject size, it can still be statistically significant, can it not? Yeah, it depends on your sample population. You know yeah. what kind of statistical power you have, or the likelihood to that the study will detect an effect. Right. Uh, you know, is the statistical power. And that you really have to sit down with a statistician and look at, you know, the probability of making a type two error or concluding that there's no effect, you know. And so this uh, and I'm I know just the you know, I had took the basic stats class and uh, but I still consult, you know, with a statistician when we're designing, you know, a study for a proposal or something like that. And you kind of, you need to run it by it. Cause if you don't do it beforehand, the reviewers that are reviewing your paper, there's always, there's always that statistician that that's, you know, part of the review committee who will ding you on it and be yeah. like, Nope, you, we're not passing it. You got to go back and do two more animals for this group. Yeah. And then it's like, ah, they could set you back, you know, like a year and a half. Sure. Published study. So, well, so you always want to do that up front. Yeah. I mean, especially I was looking at, um, with some mutual friends of ours, uh, looking at a study involving beet juice intake and endurance gains. And they were using a small sample size of extremely high level endurance athletes. And if you were to take the results, it was like, you know, a 2% performance increase or whatever and and try to convey it it sounds extremely unimpressive but the study the entire study was underpowered um Mm -hmm. in some fatal ways but the um question for you so i i enjoy scuba uh but scuba can be dangerous right uh who knows like you get snagged on something um or let's say you're uh let's just 
take a different um, scenario. So instead of using a rebreather with pure oxygen, right? So an excess of oxygen, you risk a running out of oxygen, right? Um, or excessive CO2 levels. Let's say you're a free diver and trying to break records. Would, would taking a sort of single large dose, like a bolus of uh, exogenous ketones or ketone esters before a record attempt be, uh, would that be a rational sort of um, insurance policy or w- would that in any way help mitigate potential damage yeah, that's a really good question. And so our lab, in addition to looking at oxygen, we also look at what's called hypercapnia, which is high CO2 levels. Right, because right. if you're in a spaceship that's headed to Mars or you're in a submarine, the level of CO2 that you're experiencing is about on an order of 10 times higher. So that's something that we're looking at. Uh, but when it comes to oxygen utilization, um, I guess one of the studies you could refer to is Peter Atia's blog, where we look at, we've kind of set the work. Uh, Peter took a, a ketone salt that we had and kind of a crude version of it. And uh, I commend Peter for his, this uh, is the, his bravery this, in, this in is downing the, this. This is the jet fuel that made him dry heave it's, in the kitchen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you, if you look at uh, his blog there, yeah, and I think the title is Jet Fuel, and you look at the oxygen consumption for a given work output, in his case, it was on a bike at 180 watts, uh, he had roughly, uh, you know, 5 to 8% decrease in oxygen uh, consumption for a given work output. So, showing that your oxygen utilization, you know, was lower, and so your oxygen your metabolic efficiency. So that that's kind of the the take home is that you you can enhance potentially enhance metabolic efficiency. So I can tell you that when I fasted for one week, uh, I do a lot of snorkeling and a lot of diving and just kind of water sports. And uh, out of curiosity, I was swimming around in the pool uh, at my house, and uh, I noticed I could stay under longer. And uh, I told. Uh, uh, my girlfriend, now my fiance, is like, uh, I want to do an experiment and, and measure. I, I knew what my breath hold time was. And then uh, in a fasted state, I had never checked it before. So I was able to stay down for three and a half minutes, I think, almost four minutes, which is like well beyond double my, my breath hold time. And it was it was really remarkable. So being in a state of pretty, pretty intense ketosis allowed me to uh, to withstand levels of hypoxia so what was your you know, millimolars at the time and there's yeah, yeah um, or roughly. I was running yeah I was running between four to five and a oh, half wow. you're up there uh, but I'm a good ketone user too so I would be if I'm sitting at my desk so that's what I would I would kind of be registering but if I got up and took a brisk walk around campus or around my place or something, that would drop down to like two mm. because I think you, your peripheral uptake of ketones would be higher. But, but I <laughs> you also some, have a lot of you have a lot of mass you're walking around yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, and I think we build uh, our transport and mechanisms of ketones with time. So the mono the it's called the mono carboxyl acid transporter, sort of the, the, 
the protein that gets the ketones across the membrane and allows cells to use it is upregulated over time. So the longer you're on a ketogenic diet, the more benefits you could potentially derive from it because you your body is adapting to that state of ketosis by upregulating transporter mechanisms. And a few of my colleagues study this. And in at least in a rodent model, in about takes about four weeks and you could actually double the protein level, uh, which, you know, the actual subunits of the proteins that are part of the transporter goes up about 50% huh. at when you, when you transition an animal to a ketogenic diet for four weeks. So that's a pretty remarkable increase in the potential, you know, of, of utilizing ketones as an energy source. So, and I think some of the work by Jeff Bullock, yep. I just had an opportunity to visit him at Ohio State uh, just last week. And he's done some remarkable work just showing between, you know, fat-adapted athletes and carb-adapted uh, athletes. And they're both at elite levels. If you look at substrate utilization between these two groups, it's like night and day. I mean, the even the, the best carb-adapted athletes, they're the ones that are using fat at the highest level, are using much less fat than the fat-adapted athletes, than the guys that are on the ketogenic diet. I mean, they're literally using about two to three times more fat yeah. for in, during, during exercise. And, uh, and I think that's what happens. So I, I think resting and just kind of being in a calm state and letting your sympathetic nervous system kind of chill out and having a, a good okay, – diving is a lot, a lot of – mental yeah. <laughs> uh, preparation goes into diving. But I found that, you know, if I could just kind of calm my body down and, and, and if I'm in the state of nutritional ketosis, fasting ketosis, I could increase my breath hold time by like three times, like 300%. Yeah. And that's, that blows my mind. And so I've, I need to study this. <laughs> I've also replicated that myself in two different, uh, two different experiments. I mean, it's an N of one, but, uh -huh. um, the yeah the magnitude of difference i mean it's kind of like your rat swimming around for an hour instead of 25 minutes or 15 minutes rather um double or triple breath hold time at uh even low ones like 1.3 millimolars um i don't uh i even uh, even on a very strict calor uh, calorically restricted ketogenic diet i i very rarely get past uh 3 uh unless i'm ingesting mm -hmm. stuff that facilitates it um, meaning supplemental ketones, MCT oil, et cetera. But mm -hmm. the a question for you on the, the adaptation, I'm so interested in this. So for instance, people talk about muscle memory, right? Where people regain weight faster, muscle weight after, uh, they've gained it once before, even if they lose say 50, 60 pounds, like Casey V8 or did at one point and then regained it. And they're like, Oh, well, that's muscle memory. And some people, at least based on reading I've done, attribute that to you know satellite cell growth and so on that happened the first time around that facilitate this kind of regrowth. So there's a persistent benefit to mm -hmm. that one-time event. Um, is there, uh, what is the persistence of the upregulation after four weeks of being on keto? So let's say you stay on a strict, a strict keto diet for four to six weeks, you up, you upregulate these these proteins and therefore sort of the uptake or transport by 50%. If you stopped that and didn't follow a ketogenic diet again for another six months, is there a persistence of effect? Or if you had to guess, what would you say? 
Yeah, anecdotally, I would say yes. I mean, there's cool. there's some yeah. memory going on here, and um, yeah, if you just you know if you use ketone levels as kind of an index for this, like your body's ability to make ketones, uh, it's it's definitely better. Like if you're on a ketogenic diet and you break ketosis and go eat sushi for a couple of days and come back, I can get into ketosis real quick. Uh, relative to <laughs> the big learning curve I had when I started doing this, you know. Um, so I would say, yeah, I'm not sure we've studied it to that extent I think you're referring to, but that brings up a good question, um, you know, because a lot of people want to go in and out of ketosis. Like, can I just use this intermittently? Can I can I eat ketogenic but just throwing carbs during my workout? Um you know, and, and people say, well, should I be on a ketogenic diet all the time? Should I always be in nutritional ketosis? And I tend to be in that, that state because I just feel better, uh, generally in a, a moderate state of ketosis. But I think it's probably good too to have metabolic flexibility for your, your body to be able to use all sorts of, you know, food for energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Going in and out of ketosis may be optimal, like to get your body in and out. And I do that from time to time, depending on, you know, I'll be traveling. I'll be in Europe uh, the next two or three weeks, actually. So trying different foods. So I'll probably get out of ketosis. But I actually travel with ketone supplements, too. So <laughs> I kind of cheat along the way. So if, uh, if, so if you go to like yeah. in Italy and you're eating bread and pasta, what are the main benefits I, I'm making that assumption, but I, that's what I would do because I'm a glutton but um, yeah. and, and love carbs when it comes down to it. But if if you went to Italy and were consuming all of that, what is the benefit of ingesting the exogenous ketones and how would you ingest them? Okay. Uh, depends on, you know, kind of the person, what you wanted to, uh, if you were working out or, or whatever, uh, just, uh, but yeah, just, just for general it, health and uh, energy, I would, I would yeah. say for your personal, your personal use. So you, like if you could describe sort of how much you're working out just in a scenario like that, right? You're traveling with these, um, these exogenous ketones. How yeah. do you, how do you use them and why? Okay. Um, I will – well, there's two that I kind <clears> of <throat> bring with me. One would be um, a uh, MCT powder, and it's basically caprylic triglyceride, like a brain octane but a powdered form of it. And I'm kind of – it's not on the market yet, but I just kind of have it. <laughs> and uh, and I use the Ketokina product uh-huh. that's put out by Keto Sports. Uh I will – it's kind of the first thing I take when I get up. I drink a glass of water, and then I – I take some a small amount of ketones to bump me up to about one millimolar, and, that's and then I eat a, a ketogenic diet. And that's the combination of the MCT powder and the ketokana or ketokana. God, I need to. It's like Jim Kana, like that that horrible but awesome movie I saw ages ago. Yeah. Okay. All right, keto ketokana. Is that how you guys say it? Okay. Ketokana. Yeah. So do you combine yeah. those two when you first get up and take it with water? I do sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes I'll just take the straight MCT powder. It Got just kind of depends on my mood or whatever. But uh, but I always take uh, – MCTs are so versatile and they're so cheap and so readily available. Uh, traveling with MCT oil is not like really that good. <laughs> but so the powder is something that I've been testing and I really love it. And the powder, the huge advantage of an MCT powder, especially caprylic triglyceride, is that with straight MCT oil, 
I'm running to the bathroom, you know, when I <laughs> on an empty stomach, <laughs> or if I try to get my levels up to above one millimolar, above whatever baseline I'm at. Whereas the MCT powder that I'm working, you know, that's being formulated and tested uh, is sort of spray dried with a probiotic fiber that's healthy for your microbiome and uh, has some interesting properties in and of itself. But it allows you uh, the powder increases tolerability at least double or triples it and so it allows you to kind of cruise along at an extra two millimolar and stay there and then you know you could take that powder and then add some ketocana to it and or some other you know ketone salt products that we're developing and basically i mean you're approaching the potency of a ketone ester the ketone esters will probably always be the most potent molecules out there. It'll be hard to touch that. But some of the the more palatable ketone salt products that are being developed and tested now, uh, and we're working really hard to make them tolerable and you know palatable, are will be able to approach the um, the potency of the esters that are developed for military applications, huh. which I think is really exciting because I mean they're they're going to taste. They're actually you'll look forward to tasting them. Uh, they're that good, and they can put you into that that mild ketosis range, that one to three millimolar independent of carbohydrate restriction or fasting. So you will, you know, you will have the ability to derive a lot of the benefits, whether it be health, longevity, performance of ketosis, of higher levels of ketosis than you could otherwise get with any kind of MCT oil out there or any anything out there. Uh, So I will bring that with me when I travel. And um, so I'll be in uh, Budapest and Belgium and a few other places along the way. And I will probably not be eating keto. I'll be eating low carb, but not keto. But I'll be cruising around at, you know, probably two to three millimolar, uh, kind of more or less off of a ketogenic diet, low carb, but not ketogenic. And you'll, so you'll take the, You'll you'll take your MCT powder in the morning with water. Then you'll have a keto breakfast. What does the breakfast look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> this morning, uh, I had uh, eggs. I usually have four eggs and some kind of fish. I'm a big believer. I've kind of um, I eat beef, but I've been phasing out beef and chicken, and probably getting about two thirds of my protein from fish. Uh, so I had eggs and fish in the form of sardines and, uh, a half of a can of oysters. I've been on this oyster kick for a while. <laughs> Why is and, that? Uh, oysters? Well, I mean, they're, they're like a nutrition powerhouse, right? So are sardines. So I get the sardines, uh, packed in olive oil, but, uh, they're really high in micronutrients like selenium and, uh, which are, you know, things that are maybe hard to get from other sources out there, but, um, but I think I just like the taste of them too. So, right. um, so sardines are really good to travel with. They're, they're my travel food too. So whenever my bag is packed, I usually have about a dozen cans of sardines packed in extra virgin olive oil. So I tend to just, I like them so much. I eat them when I'm home too. So I have, yeah, fish and eggs and some kind of green, usually asparagus, broccoli or spinach or kale, and if I make kale, I like to cook bacon, and I cook the kale and the bacon grease. But I didn't do that this morning, but I'll probably do that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I had for breakfast. But before I eat breakfast, I always kind of drink water first, and I, I take uh, branched-chain amino acids, 
uh, with the ketone products that I just told you about. And that kind of gets energy to my brain like immediately. And I'm kind of like really good to go after that. And usually, but well, before that I let my dog out and he just kind of goes crazy. So I kind of run around and watch him chase animals off our property. So <laughs> it's always an entertaining thing while, uh, while coffees or I got water brewing for my coffee and I got my, my, uh, breakfast cooking. And, uh, so that usually goes on in the morning and, uh, but yeah, I always, my, my breakfast is always pretty much ketogenic. And if I have coffee, I do put butter in it and I put, uh, MCT powder in it on top of the butter. So it's very ketogenic. And, uh, the macronutrient ratio of my breakfast is always about, about 70 to 80% fat. And, uh, with the balance being, you know, protein and a little bit of carbs from whatever green vegetables I have. And, um, the, uh, BCAAs, what brand are you using? Yeah, I use a uh, Cyvation. How do you spell so, that? Yeah, it's short for uh, science and innovation. So S I O S C I V A T I O N, right? Yeah, Cyvation. So Cyvation has been an incredible supporter of our uh, our cancer research program. So, as you know, getting getting funding to do metabolic therapy research or research on diets and nutrition and just basically cancer metabolism in general. Just people don't study it. Right. Uh, the CEO of Cytations uh, is a close friend of mine and uh, he has been for personal reasons and just kind of, you know, scientific reasons. He has supported our cancer research program and his branch chain amino acid product is called extend. Uh, and it's, you know, it's probably the most popular one out there and it's, you know, on probably the most popular on bodybuilding.com. And, uh, it's actually the product that we're using in our cancer studies. So mm -hmm. I, he asked me, he contacted me and wanted me to, to study this. And I looked at the formula and it had a, a high amount of glutamine <clears throat> in it. So, uh, I said, you know, I want to study this, but let's remove the glutamine and just do pure, branch chain amino acids and uh, I think he replaced the glutamine and put some taurine in it or whatever and we we started with that and uh, we added now, now, is that because the glutamine is uh, glucogenic or what was the reason for removing yeah. the L-glutamine yeah I should describe so uh, cancer cells in um, kind of default to a metabolic phenotype called the Warburg effect right so they they basically derive most of their energy from glucose metabolism and their biosynthetic processes. As a, as a tumor grows, it's using glucose for energy, but it's also using glucose to expand the biomass of the tumor. So it becomes the primary uh, source of energy. And, and we, we knew this for some time, and that sort of underlies the basis of using what's called a PET scan for imaging the location and the aggressiveness of a tumor in imaging, an FDG PET scan. So it basically shows sugar metabolism or glucose metabolism. So now investigators understand that the amino acid glutamine is also used at a fairly high concentration relative to other amino acids, I guess I would say, uh, by cancer cells. So, And we call that glutaminolysis. So cancer cells can use glucose 
primarily glucose, but they can also use glutamine. And there's this is understood now and, and kind of well defined in the literature. So, but we know that glutamine. I mean, some formulas actually promote, or hospitals will promote giving uh, IV glutamine or oral glutamine to cancer patients. Uh, that's not necessarily proven to be a bad thing, but I think I was erring on the side of caution by removing the glutamine uh, from the Extend product, at least for our studies. Right. And we want to go back and do a parallel study with the glutamine, actually, to see. And the, and the but, IV uh, glutamine in the hospitals is for... Uh, waste to, per, to, to for an anti-catabolic purpose, or is it for some type of recovery purpose? Why are they doing that in the first place? Yeah, glutamine. I know a lot of people take glutamine post-workout, for instance. Yeah, if you're ingesting it, the gut pretty much, the gut and the liver, I think, probably are pretty greedy and take their share. Uh, I'm not sure how much glutamine you're actually getting to the right. muscles when you do that. Right. But glutamine, I would say, is a conditionally essential amino acids. So under periods of high stress or catabolic physiological state, your body will use more glutamine. Uh, glutamine is also a, uh, an important amino acid for maintaining your immune system. So it plays a, a I would say if you're deficient in glutamine, it can compromise your immune system. So you want to make sure that if your immune system is challenged, which it would be, you know, if you have if you have cancer, if you're getting chemotherapy, if, you, if you're a burn patient, uh, you know, you're going to want, you, you might want uh, glutamine. Although we don't, we want to, we're, we're testing a hypothesis that uh, we want to metabolically starve cancer cells in our experiment and preserve muscle at the same time. So the Extend product that, that's out there by Cyvation is a remarkable product. I think people like it because it tastes so good. So the people who formulate the product really know what they're doing with taste. So it tastes like really, really good. So, and that's, that's, if you want a successful product, it doesn't matter if it, you know, cures cancer, enhances your performance, you know, 10 times over. If it doesn't taste good, people are not going to take it. So the Cyvation, branching amino acids, they taste really good, but they're also, you know, very tolerable and very, you know, palatable. Uh, But they, you know, this particular product had glutamine. So we removed it from uh, the formula for our studies and we ran a study with a ketogenic diet and we added the branched chain amino acid to the ketogenic diet. And we uh, looked at survival of mice with, with advanced metastatic cancer. And um, adding the branched chain amino acid to the ketogenic diet, we had like a 50% increase in survival with the ketogenic diet alone. And when we added branched chain amino acids to the ketogenic diet, there was trends for an increase in survival. But I think the big thing is that we saw uh, the animals were maintaining their their weight better uh, with the branched chain amino acids added to it. So with branched chain amino acids, one of them is leucine. And we know leucine can activate mTOR. And mTOR has been associated with uh, driving, a major driver for cancer growth and proliferation. But, you know, and, and there's cancer biologists out there that would say, well, if you give leucine, you're just going to drive cancer because you're stimulating a, an anabolic process that can drive cancer growth and proliferation. But 
I would kind of argue that uh, that's not the case here. We definitely don't see it in this model, and some of the other studies out there uh, do not show that branched-chain amino acids cause cancer to grow faster, and some of it shows the opposite, actually. Uh, but I, I think branched-chain amino acids have their effect on anabolic processes are relatively specific to skeletal muscle. And I think that's, that's really important to understand, is that stimulating anabolic processes is not a global effect. Is that, uh, it's kind of similar to anabolic steroids, right? So there's specific receptors on the muscles. <laughs> and we think that that the um right and that's also why if you take a sort of less selective growth agonist you end up looking like you're seven months pregnant as a bodybuilder because <laughs> your yeah, yeah your yeah. your intestines are the size of uh your forearms yeah <laughs> yeah igf1 is great for like growing your skin and your organs yeah <laughs> so it has a pretty global systemic anabolic effect whereas uh and we didn't we haven't proven this yet but i think just based on literature and you know really we're really delving into it we think that the branched chain amino acids will be relatively specific for skeletal muscle and uh and to look at this you know we're going to you know, feed animals the, the branched chain amino acids, and then we take the actual tumor tissue out. And then, you know, we do a series of, you know, metabolic analysis and, and assays and everything to look at the, uh, the signaling and uh, the, you know, insulin signaling, the metabolomics, the growth factors and whatnot. So, and compare it to the groups without the branched chain amino acids. So, we're really delving mechanistically into this. Which is, which is something I, I, love and enjoy about your research and our conversations is that, I mean, you're, you have a lot of expertise in neurochemistry, neurobiology, cancer chemistry, but you're not, would you consider yourself a nutritionist? Uh, you know, I, as an undergrad, I, I enthusiastically went into a nutrition science program at Rutgers university. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and my, uh, who would you call it? I guess my guidance counselor at the time, you know, just wasn't a very interesting person. And I was like, well, I kept going to her and I said, well, you direct me to labs that are doing interesting nutrition science research. And there wasn't a whole lot going on. I mean, I like Rutgers and everything, but there just wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of stuff going on there that really interested me. And the more people I talked to, I, I was kind of going the pre-med route. And, uh, and people were like, well, yeah, you should probably, you should probably major in biology too. So I double majored in, in nutrition, biological sciences. And, uh, but I really had a passion for nutrition. And then when I went into a PhD program, it was neuroscience because I was really fascinated with the brain, but also did physiology. And uh, I studied the neural control of autonomic regulation, so how the brain controls our body, our physiology. And then, uh, you know, I started, uh, did my postdoc in, uh, you know, looking at uh, physiological resilience and the oxygen toxicity thing. And it brought me back full circle because yeah. when I started you know, basically a pharmacologist as a neuroscientist trying to find a drug that would mitigate oxygen toxicity seizures. And I'm looking at all these drugs and 
I realized that they're not they're not very good. You have they would be good if you give them at a dose that would sedate a warfighter, you know, and basically <laughs> put them into a coma and it's not very uh not the ideal way to prevent seizures. Ideal situation. <laughs> yeah. But then when I discovered, you know, the ketogenic diet and I wasn't, you know, really excited when I first discovered it. And I was like, ah, let me see the research on this. There's a lot of things out there. But the research on it was so like cut and dry. I mean, there was an overwhelming amount of scientific research showing the efficacy of the ketogenic diet for drug-resistant pediatric seizures, and now now in adults, too. And I realized, wow, this is like the most powerful metabolic therapy out there for seizures, like bar none. And I was like, you know, I realized this was grossly underutilized. And if I could harness the power of this and apply it to something as esoteric as, you know, CNS oxygen toxicity, that would be really cool. So I could kind of bring back my passion for nutrition, uh, which was always there. I always, even, you know, throughout grad school and postdoc, I was totally into working out and nutrition and understanding, you know, different diets and trying lots of stuff on myself. Uh, it, it, it allowed me to, you know, kind of come full circle and, uh, and incorporate, you know, nutrition research into my research now. So our entire research program is really based on the ketogenic diet. So we do ketogenic diet studies, exogenous ketones, but we also do metabolic drugs. So we do, you know, metformin and a few other mm-hmm. drugs. Well, and a lot of, I mean, you mentioned metformin as sort of a regulator of, uh, you know, liver glycogen, hepatic glycogen. Um, yeah. And there are plenty of folks who take metformin. Uh, is it still called glucophage? The, um, or glucophage, I'm not sure the, uh, the brand name, but the metformin prophylactically. I mean, these are otherwise what you yeah. would consider healthy people who are taking it primarily to prevent, uh, cancer growth, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, is that fair to say, or are they using it for other purposes? Yeah, you can use it for a variety of reasons. Uh, you could use it as kind of a metabolic prophylactin to prevent you from getting type 2 diabetes right. down the road. But when it comes to cancer, yeah, it definitely uh, activates uh, or dampens or activates signaling pathways associated with cancer growth and proliferation. And if you're activating AMP kinase, which it's well known to do that, and, um, and activate various downstream signaling processes, uh, it, it, it mimics in many ways calorie restriction and fasting, uh, the, the same processes that would be activated. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it comes with some side effects and some people have intolerance to it, you know, GI issues with it. But overall, it's a really safe drug. I mean, so many prescriptions have been written for it. Like we know what it does and what it doesn't do. Uh, we don't really, the cancer, the cancer, uh, there's a lot of research in cancer right now. And when you go to a cancer conference, you hear there's a lot of discussion, a lot of buzz about metformin, but there's also a lot of debate as to how it's working. So some people think it's, it's, it's toxic to the mitochondria and it's inhibiting complex one of the mitochondria and other people are saying it works purely by activating amp kinase and other people by its ability to regulate hepatic glucose output or combination and, and some people through other mechanisms. So we don't know how it works, but I think, you know, I, I did a, I did a run where I took one gram of metformin for, I think it was 12 weeks and, uh, and I got blood work and 
the only thing I saw was that my testosterone was lower. <laughs> so that was, I think that's the side effect. I have since got off of it and I, I rechecked and my testosterone levels like are back into the normal range. They did, were, did you feel that's any the fatigue? only thing I, no, I didn't. And I, well, I felt, I don't know how to describe it a little, maybe a little less anxious, a little bit kind of like you're, you kind of set the governor, like my highs weren't as high and it's like, and I would kind of dose it. I dose it twice a day and my bigger dose would be at nighttime before I went to bed. Cause that would be my bigger meal. So I would kind of dose the metformin according to my food intake, which I think is important. Uh, <clears throat> but I, yeah, I didn't really notice any side effects. I, I went up to two grams a day initially and found out, okay, that that's about my tolerance to, to it. So I, I backed down. No, no. So yeah. to gut tolerance, meaning to disaster pants, like uh, risk, is that, I mean, <laughs> not, not the MCT effect, not, okay. not what I right, describe right. as the MCT effect, but I would, it's kind of like a dull kind of aching feeling in the stomach, but yeah, there was a, like a loose stools a little bit. And then I, I just kind of the next day I backed off and I played around with it for probably two or three weeks. And then I, I realized, okay, one gram is about what I can do, um, you know, safely and comfortably, I, I thought. And, uh, yeah, I did that for three months and I tried to like take nothing else at the time or wasn't experimenting with any other things. And, um, and I took that and my testosterone went down. Let's see. But my, my other market, like my triglycerides were the lowest ever. My HDL was like 98. It bumped up wow. from like 80 to 98. Uh, and other things like my C reactive protein wasn't even measurable. And I, and I did, I tried not to calorie restrict or even change my diet at all. So some things went in the positive direction, but, but I, I was, I, I really thought that it suppressed my testosterone. And there's a couple of publications that would indicate that it does that. You know, maybe if I took 500 grams a day, it wouldn't, or 500 milligrams a day, I wouldn't have that effect. But I felt like I get a gram a day. And, um, I had like a powdered version. So it was probably like one point, you know, one to 1.5 grams a day. I was kind of measuring out with, mm -hmm. with a powdered version. Uh, so it was at least one gram a day I was taking. Um, so that's, that, that's my experience with it. And I know, I know a few people out there, if, if cancer runs in your family and you, uh, are concerned that, you know, you may be at risk or maybe had cancer in the past. Uh, I think it's, it's a pretty safe drug to take. One of my students, uh, is PhD student and his entire PhD dissertation is on metformin. So we're looking at it, you know, very deep, uh, kind of understanding of, of metformin as much as, you know, you can in a, PhD dissertation. So right. we delve over the literature, we were running studies in individual cells in isolation in, in advanced cancer models. And, you know, we're, we have a pretty good understanding of what it does and what it doesn't do. And in our metastatic cancer model, uh, we have survival times increased almost 40 to 50 percent increase in survival. Now, and metastatic, we have to give a pretty big dose. Is that with some uh, you're talking about metformin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, just it's, metformin to a standard diet increases the survival times of animals that have, um, 
metastatic cancer. We've presented this at several meetings, and we're finishing up the data now to, to publish it, which would be published pretty soon. And that does that include in the animal models? I'm not sure if this is in the animal, but like um, glioblastoma multiforme, like the, the GBM, sort of the uniformly, what's what are considered kind of the, the, the uniformly fatal cancers. Yeah. Is that also, do you still see the 40 to 50%? Yeah. So it's interesting. So the, um, the metastatic cancer model that we have, the primary tumor is derived from a tumor that pathologists confirmed was a glioblastoma. What's interesting about these cancer cells are so aggressive that we have them in culture, right? We have uh, isolated cell cultures of these cells that are metastatic and very aggressive. And they're transfected with a gene that makes that, that, uh, makes the protein, uh, luciferase. So, uh, it basically makes the cells glow in the presence of luciferin. So, uh, not to get too complicated, but if we take these cells in culture, right, we harvest them and we implant them inside, uh, the flank of the animal or underneath the skin, it, uh, the cells, uh, metastasize to all the organs and even the brain. So typically a glioblastoma is thought not to metastasize to other organs of the body and it stays in the brain. Uh, but I think our, I think we don't typically see people with glioblastoma with liver cancer because they die of the glioblastoma before it metastasizes. Right. So, uh, we've basically, um, and this is a model that was generated by Thomas Seyfried from, um, from Boston College. He wrote the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. It's a really, really good book. Uh, it's like required reading for all my students. But, uh, he developed this model and made like the cover of International Journal of Cancer. And it's, it's probably the best model out there. So it's, it's why we chose the model. But it's a, it's a model of advanced metastatic cancer. And the primary tumor was, um, had a glioblastoma kind of cell type to it. And these cells were, uh, kind of described as tumor associated macrophages. So they can travel along blood vessels. They can metastasize to organs very aggressively. And it makes it a, it makes it a, uh, a convenient model to use because when you implant the cells, the experiment goes real fast, right? Because, because the animal succumbs to the tumor burden within about 21 days. So we can test and we can basically test a lot of things really fast because the tumors grow so fast within 21 days, we have to put the animal down uh, because they you know, it'll succumb to the tumor burden. So it allows us to test various drugs and diets and, and ketogenic agents. And when we tested metformin with a standard high carbohydrate rat chow, and we formulated it into, uh, into the food. So it would be equivalent to a person taking about 2.5 grams a day. So metformin comes in like 500 milligram tablets. I think even sometimes one gram tablets. So with the 500 milligram tablets, it would be taking like five tablets a day, uh, would be the human equivalent to that. The animals lived about, about 50% longer, anywhere about 45 to 50% longer survival time. So instead of living, you know, 21 days, they lived like, uh, almost 40 days. And so, so what we're doing now, and, uh, so we have to like tediously test all these things in isolation And then we have to do different dose ranges 
too, right? right? So we got to do a variety of dose ranges and make all these dose curves and everything. But I'm, I just want to jump right into it. You know, I want to do a calorie restricted ketogenic diet with ketone supplementation and metformin and hyperbaric oxygen. <laughs> yeah, I want to jump right to it. But uh, and we're kind of doing some of these things as pilots, but uh, but we're testing. I think it's really important to get a handle on what each of these things do now, here's, at different dosages. No, yeah. definitely. I let me let me. I, I apologize for interrupting, but if you and you would find this, you would figure this out earlier, of course. But if you found out you had relatively advanced cancer of some aggressive type, what what are the tools that you would throw at it? that you have a decent degree of confidence would have a beneficial effect. Like, so you mentioned a few things, right? You mentioned, uh, calorie restricted ketogenic diet. So I'd love to hear, um, what calorie restricted means, right? Um, you mentioned metformin, you mentioned uh, hyperbaric uh, oxygen treatment. Um, you mentioned exogenous ketones. We talked earlier about fasting, but let's just say you found out, Oh shit. Uh, I'm in, I'm in a bad situation here, and uh, this is a very very aggressive cancer. Putting aside the chemotherapy and some of the other um, therapies that that you might have administered uh, of mm-hmm. the toolkits that we've been discussing, like what would you what would you do? Okay, um, well, you know, so I, I'm not the kind of person. <laughs> some of my colleagues are kind of very anti standard of care some of them for some ways, but I think you have to, I know you told me not to talk about chemo, but if you have something like testicular cancer or, or leukemia or lymphoma, uh, there's a variety of cancers. You'd be crazy not to do the standard of care. So, sure. uh, so, so, so when I, when I talk about this, uh, it could, one could potentially use it as a standalone therapy or one could use it as a way to further augment the efficacy of standard of care, For sure. which we, we plan to do both. Uh, so say, you know, worst case scenario, like glioblastoma, right? Um, a glioblastoma is in, in some ways it's, it's a really a good, a good model to look at because your survival time is like one year, give or take a few months. So it, it's almost, you know, uh, you know, if we do a study with glioblastoma patients, it's almost like you have historical controls that you can right. refer to. Uh, so, uh, so the ketogenic diet, I think, would be would be absolutely like your base therapy, right? And it, and it would be not just a macronutrient ratio; it would be the sources of the the macronutrients itself. Like you would have to, you would do a macronutrient ratio that would put you into ketosis, but take extra care to get, you know, fish that was from a natural source or grass fed beef. And and I think these things would probably be important because we know the fatty acid composition changes dramatically from, you know, a corn fed cow than to a grass fed or, or a salmon that's farm raised or, or wild. So the ketogenic diet would be kind of the base. And instead of the normal, you know, three day or three times a day eating pattern, I would go to an intermittent fasting mm-hmm. um, personally. And I think that would be, that would, you could further harness the power of ketosis by fasting throughout the day and then having a ketogenic meal so you'd have, once a day. So your you single eat. meal would be like a dinner. Uh, it would be dinner. Yeah. You would eat probably within a window of, you know, four hours. 
like right. slowly. And I think, and I've experimented with that, and that's possible. I just like eating though, so I like I like sitting down and having like a social breakfast. And I don't eat during the day, and then I have a nice sit-down social kind of dinner at night. So I like that. So either way, I think ideally I would probably do one meal a day. And uh, ketone supplementation, I think. I mean, we've shown independent of even the ketogenic diet that ketones have an anti-cancer effect. They not only do our ketones cannot be utilized as an energy source by aggressive cancer cells that have defective mitochondria. So cancer cells cannot use ketones effectively as an energy source because they have defective mitochondria structurally. They're defective. If you look at the mitochondria of uh, cells of a glioblastoma patient, they're the inner cristae the little folds inside the mitochondria where ATP is actually produced is completely screwed up. And they're also deficient in various ketolytic enzymes that would allow the cancer cells to make energy from ketones. So ketones, uh, ketones as a source of energy is a very poor energy source for, for cancer. So putting our state into, putting our body into a state of nutritional ketosis would be a way to marginalize, you know, the fuel source to ketones and enhance the energy capacity of our healthy cells. And so for, exogenous ketones. Yeah. What type, like for you personally, what would, how much would you take? When would you take them? Yeah, I would take a level of exogenous ketones that would put me above whatever baseline I was at between one to two millimolar. So if I'm cruising along at like 1.5, you know, staying on a modified Atkins like diet, I would further boost that to like three or three and a half uh, with with exogenous ketogenic agents. I think the easiest could be medium chain triglycerides, you know, uh, MCT powder, which will be available soon. Uh, the keto Cana product. Uh, there's some. There'll be some products coming out pretty soon. Uh, ketone salt products that'll taste really good, and will be will allow you to easily achieve this. How much and, would you have to take you personally to jack your ketone millimolar up one to two millimolars, like you described? Is it a three times yeah. a day, twice a day? Like what what type of dosing and frequency are we looking at? I would do twice a day. It's probably twice a day or. Maybe three times a day, depending. See, the MCTs kind of allow you to maintain the levels up a little bit higher. Uh, but I think it's okay to not continuously, you know, provide an exogenous source of ketones, but maybe just use them uh, when you need them, if you need to boost in energy. But if you, so you, but if you had the glioblastoma, you would do yeah. two to three times I would a day. Do, I would do two to four times a day, probably, because... The way kind of our experiments are panning out, it just looks like, you know, the, the, the stronger you stay in ketosis, the higher levels you get, the, the better uh, tumor suppressor effects that you get. So, um, yeah, I would, I would use them to the extent where I was pretty much constantly, uh, from the time I wake up, keeping my ketones more or less artificially elevated. Well, I guess it wouldn't be artificial if you're adding MCTs, but um, which are a good carrier for the other forms of, of exogenous ketones uh, to keep it further boosted an additional one to two millimolar Got it. minimum. And um, what, what about other things that you might do? Yeah. Uh, uh, the metformin. Uh, I would, 
I would titrate metformin into where it starts causing side effects and then back off from there. Titrate meaning you just start low and increase the dosage. Yep. Even, you know, you can get it 250 milligram tablets or break the tablet in half and keep, you know, start out one week, maybe start at 500 and then go up to 750 and then to a gram and then bump it up to where, you know, you start get some GI discomfort and then back it off and then stay there. Metformin is pretty, pretty cheap, pretty remarkable drug in our hands. And I think it would synergize with the other things that I'm describing. So DCA is another um, another drug that we're looking at. And one could simply get on Google and do a search for dichloroacetate, DCA, and cancer and find a lot of interesting information. I think there's, uh, there's clinical, registered clinical trials going on right now with uh, glioblastoma. Hmm. And we think it may synergize with some of the things that I'm talking about, even metformin. So DCA activates a particular enzyme metabolic pathway, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And uh, for reasons we don't completely understand, it can cause cancer cells to, it, it kills them. It triggers apoptosis in, in cancer cells by reasons we don't completely have a, a handle on yet. But uh, it's used clinically for lactic acidosis. So, and lactate can drive, or, you know, in the microenvironment, lactate can drive tumor growth. So DCA can actually uh, make your body more alkaline, right? I mean, it's used clinically for that application. And maybe its therapeutic effects may have to do with that, but we know that if we just grow cancer cells, you know, in isolation, like a dissociated cell prep and put on DCA, the, the cancer cells start to die <laughs> mm. uh, and at, at levels that are relatively non-toxic to healthy cells. Uh, so dichloroacetate at, you know, I don't like to give recommended, but if I was to no, this is for, this theoretical, is for you right? and theoretical, yeah. Yeah. I would start at like 10 milligrams per kilogram, you know, and I'm a little over a hundred kilograms or whatever. So you could do the math on that. And so I would start to 10 milligrams per kilogram and probably not go higher than 50 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, because once you get above 50 milligrams per kilogram of DCA, you start to get, get peripheral neuropathy. And this, we see this in our animal models, and it's also reported in patients. If you go onto the forums of patients that have glioblastomas, they'll report tingling in the fingers and the toes at like, you know, once they start reaching about 50 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, I think the clinical trials use 20 milligrams per kilogram, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, so DCA activates pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So that complex makes the mitochondria, it activates the mitochondria. And if you activate the mitochondria of cancer cells, which have defective mitochondria, it, it like causes the mitochondria to like explode and the cancer cells to, it triggers apoptosis. So it probably triggers the release of cytochrome C from the mitochondria, which is part of the apoptotic pathway. Apoptosis so, uh, meaning cell death. Yeah. Program cell death. Program cell yeah. death. Yep. So, and that's, that's kind of like a theory that I'm throwing out there, but it's based on kind of what we know, what we see in the lab and what we know from the literature. Uh, but it's relatively, you know, a non-toxic drug. I mean, relative to the chemotherapeutic agents that are chemotherapy is, are highly carcinogenic. Right. <laughs> so when you're giving chemotherapy, you're giving 
a highly carcinogenic substance. So does it make sense to treat cancer with something that we know is a powerful carcinogen? So it, it doesn't. In some cases, it does. Like I mentioned, some of the testicular some of the cancers cancer, I mentioned before. Yeah. yeah, and there's there's application for it, but uh, but I think we have to view it this in perspective. DCA, I don't think you can patent it. It's like a really simple molecule, dichloroacetate. Right? You can kind of visualize it if you're a chemist. It's a pretty small, simple molecule, and it, it has a pretty powerful metabolic effect. And again, it, it works, it works well by itself with a high carbohydrate diet. So just think about how it may synergize with the ketogenic diet, exogenous ketones, you know, metformin, intermittent fasting. You know, it's working, it has, it's working through overlapping mechanisms. So you are further compromising sort of the, the energetic state of the, of the cancer cells by adding it to the mix. And if you had, uh-huh. if you had this, you're using this portfolio of techniques, right? So you're on a, you're in a ketogenic diet, you're intermittent fasting, you're consuming exogenous ketones two to four times a day, enough to jack up your sort of, uh, ceiling, uh, by one to two millimolars. You're, you're perhaps taking metformin in combination with DCA is, would fasting be additive to this or would it be redundant in your mind? I think it has its place, you know, and uh, you may not want to do, depending on your overall health, uh, like my health, I can tolerate fasting pretty much every day. Intermittent fasting would be no problem. But I think you could derive benefits by fasting, you know, two or three times a week, even once a week, you know. I think could be beneficial. Uh, but I, I would try to do it, you know, some people do every other day fasting, but I think one meal a day is one way to go about doing it. Uh, or alternatively, if that's too stressful, you could eat, you know, two or three meals one day and then, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do, uh, do one meal per day. Uh, but I think that that gap in time, that 20 plus hours that you're not eating and that you have, you know, metformin in your system, you have DCA in your system and you have exogenous ketones kind of flooding your, your bloodstream. I mean, it's, it's putting your physiology, it's putting your metabolic physiology into a state that's compromising the tumor tissue and, uh, and I always, you know, and I discussed this with my colleague, Tom Seyfried, he thinks that if you don't have cancer and you do a therapeutic fast, you know, once or twice a year, uh, or maybe three times a year, if it's a shorter fast, that it would purge any precancerous cells that may be living in your body. So if you put your, your physiology into a, a state of fasting ketosis, that puts tremendous metabolic stress on cancer cells that are highly dependent for survival and growth on, you know, high levels of glucose and insulin yeah. by, by subtracting them of those growth needs, they can trigger apoptosis, autophagy, and you could potentially purge yourself of some precancerous cells. cells, which pretty much everybody has by age 35, 40, right? I would imagine. Pretty much. Yeah. Our immune system is kind of a surveillance mechanism that detects them and takes care of them. Uh, you know, in our animal models, the, the cancer cells are kind of 
they, they've evolved to evade the immune system. So that's one of the hallmarks of cancer, right? That it can metastasize, evade the immune system. You know, now in 2011, they finally added that it has a, an aberrant metabolic phenotype, but they ignored the whole metabolic thing for a while. But yeah, so the immune system, our immune system kind of becomes overwhelmed or declines in its capacity with age. So that surveillance, that immune system surveillance over our bodies of these potential neoplastic cells um, is, can, can be overlooked. And I think one way to reset our body and even stimulate our immune system is to do therapeutic fasting. Definitely. And I think it can, can build us up in ways that we're just really starting to understand now. So, so I'm trying to, or I'm not trying, I am fasting at least once per quarter. Um, and the the question of duration is one um, I'd love to ask you about because I can go seven days if need be. I've I've done that already. Uh, last time I wanted to see what it would be like just from a starvation standpoint. You know, crashing an airplane, going from high carb intake to yeah. no food, which I would not do again. <laughs> uh, I would induce yeah. ketosis as quickly as possible nutritionally yeah. and then do it. But because I had excruciating lower back pain, I mean, I, I just was like in a fetal yeah. position with, I think my uric <clears> acid <throat> levels that. were just through the roof among yeah. other things. Uh, so I'd like to avoid that. That was really shitty. But, um, my, my question is if, if the therapeutic fast is say two to three times a year, what duration might those fasts be? What is the sort of minimum effective dose um, in your colleague's mind or your, I'm not sure if it was a colleague or student, but yeah. Um, if you want to do it kind of hardcore <laughs> yeah. and, uh, it's kind and of you're, my you're, MO. You're <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so, and, and this would apply to someone on a high carbohydrate diet too, but what I've seen, I mean, you just described it very nicely <laughs> there, the back pain, some you know your body goes into kind of more shitty, or less a shitty sleep like horrible yeah. like I guess that's a, is that a cholinergic response I don't know but like every I was in a location where there were forty people fasting fifty people fasting some of whom yeah. had been doing it for two weeks three weeks four weeks or or uh, or so wow. and ev- but everyone reported horrible insomnia and like tachycardia you know like rapid heartbeat yeah. when they were yeah. trying to sleep. So, yeah, that, that's an activation of your sympathetic nervous system. It's your body saying, hey, this is a stress response. So that's lack of fuel flow to your brain <laughs> will trigger brain fog. It'll trigger headache. It'll trigger activation of sympathetic immune system. Uh, it will – your insulin levels will go down very rapidly, right? And when insulin goes down, it has a naturetic effect, which means that you lose sodium. So you're peeing out all your sodium. So your blood volume drops, you become hypovolemic and your blood uh, pressure will drop and that'll contribute to your headache and you're just feeling crappy and dizziness when you stand up and all that. Yeah, I've seen several women, it seems to be more pronounced in women that try this, that that, that they faint and they, they, you know, I had a couple of them like call me up and just, it just made them go crazy. Like it, they thought they were going to die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if you can get past that and I, I, I think <laughs> <laughs> you can get past the feeling of, uh, you know, and that's usually the second and third day. Yeah. Uh, I've got reports as early as the end of the first day, but I think they were kind of wimps, but usually the second and third day you're kind of <laughs> hurting. If you can cruise through that and I think cruising through it would would be a lot easier with exogenous ketones. So I if totally, you're giving your body, you can kind of yeah. cheat through that. 
So this is this is something that I'm kind of working on, like developing, like thoughtfully uh, developing protocols that would make this whole process easier and even enjoyable potentially. Uh, so, but so okay, like in a perfect world, if you can tolerate fasting, I would do it uh, ideally. Yeah, like maybe once every quarter for five days. Uh, I think five days is a, is sort of the point where you start to level off everything. Five to seven days. Some of the that work by George Cahill at Harvard showed them kind of leveling off at about ten days. But they were like severely obese people starting from absolute baseline. Uh, so I would say a five to seven day fast, two to three times a day or maybe two to four times, uh, not per day, per year. <laughs> would be I was like, wow, this is a real interstellar yeah. moment. You're like really doing some funny stuff with time. Okay. Yeah. No, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, Per no. year I think would be something to do. And you'd want to, you know, I, I would kind of say, you know, time it so it would fit into your schedule. But yeah. when I fasted, I did it like right in the middle of writing grants and teaching and all this other stuff. And it didn't, I think it increased my productivity because think about all the time that you spend, you know, preparing food, eating food, cleaning up, eliminating <laughs> and shopping for food and all these things associated with our fixation on food. It's a lot. And, and that, that's kind of time that you save. And uh, I also realized that I was prior to doing this, and this goes back like five, six years ago, I had a preoccupation with food. Like I was, I thought, and even going back maybe a little bit longer, I, I thought I had to eat like five or six meals a day. And I would prepare my food, like all my food on a Sunday and put it in bags and Tupperware and have it in there and have it labeled. And I was kind of neurotic about it. And, you know, and that, that's okay if you're into that sort of thing. And I think it's good, but I just... I, and, and actually may be more efficient throughout the week. And, you know, no, no offense against people who do that. But, uh, but I find that, uh, not doing that <laughs> makes me more, more productive. And I find that eating a ketogenic diet also sustains me, uh, sustains my energy levels to where I just get more out of life. I'm more productive. I'm not fixated on food because I don't have to eat as frequently, but, uh, but because my energy levels more stable, so I can spend the time doing the things that I think uh, are more productive. And I'm, you know, I'm in the process. You know, as we speak, uh, this is like the week that I'm submitting everything for my tenure. You know, so it's like been super crazy as far as you know, 18-hour days uh, preparing for all this and traveling and stuff on top of that. And I can't imagine doing that. You know, living the way I used to live, eating like five, six meals a day and having it timed and everything. I just, I just couldn't do it. it yeah, so it, it is, just, it is very liberating to realize that you don't yes. have to eat on the clock three times a day and that in fact you'll be fine. And in some cases even better. Um, I was yeah. astonished. I mean, when I went through my very unpleasant, like plane crash simulation, of starvation, um, I was miserable from, uh, well, miserable is exaggerated. I was f fatigued in day two and then I had the, the low back pain and so on, uh, day three and part of day four and then I was fine. But the latter part of day four, five, six, and then, uh, before breaking the fast were, f I felt fantastic. I mean, I went for long walks. I felt, uh, extraordinarily, um, cognitively sharp. Um, yeah. Have you found that you, you or other people, subjects in ketosis, 
require less sleep because I, when I get past a certain millimolar point for whatever reason, and I love sleep and I tend to sleep quite a bit, you know, eight to 10 hours a night, but I found that I would wake up at after six hours, six and a half hours and not have any morning fog and be able to go about my day without fatigue. Has that, have you observed that in other people or is that just a, uh, a Tim thing? Yeah, I, I have. I've gotten emails about that. I found a couple, you know, kind of articles on discussing that. And I found that in myself that, uh, like last night I got to bed at 2 a.m. I try to get to bed at like midnight and I woke up at 6.37. So I'm running off four and a half, maybe five hours. And I feel totally fine. I've been pretty productive today. Um, did, did a lot of work in the morning. Uh, and I typically run better best on about six hours as opposed to maybe seven or eight that I felt I required. Um, and that depends on, you know, my activity level and kind of what's going on. But generally I feel like I I need about one or two hours less sleep that my requirement for that is less now. And, uh, and I think there's different reasons for that. And I think when we're in a state of nutritional ketosis, we have, uh, better fuel flow to our brain without the fluctuations in glucose throughout the day. And I think that we're, our, our astrocytes actually kind of spare our astrocytes. What is an have, astrocyte? I oh, I'm sorry. There's different brain cells, uh, neurons and, and glia cells. And, right. and among the glia would be astrocytes. And it's thought that astrocytes are, uh, they actually store glycogen. Uh, a form of carbohydrates, a form of glucose for the neurons. And it's thought that 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 may be their function and that when we go to sleep, the astrocytes uh, can actually build up their glycogen levels. So there's a couple studies that that indicate this. And and I think sleep is a restorative process, obviously, but I think we we, we restore neurotransmitters and we restore the bioenergetics of the brain when we sleep. And I think that process is more... Uh, is enhanced or, or is uh, augmented, you know, when you're in a state of ketosis or if you've adapted to living in a state of ketosis. I think our brains are better uh, able to restore homeostasis of our, our brain chemistry. Uh, and I think that that metabolic, so enhancing global brain metabolic activity or preserving brain homeostasis uh, or metabolic homeostasis in the brain is a reason why the ketogenic diet is so effective for all these different seizure disorders independent of the etiology. So whether it's a glucose transporter deficiency or what temporal What does etiology epilepsy. mean? Oh, etiology is like the independent of the cause of the disease. Ah. So, um, so for example, uh, glucose transporter deficiency syndrome is actually there's a defect in the transporter that gets the glucose across the blood-brain barrier for the brain to use. Glucose has an energy source. So if, if a child has glucose transporter deficiency, the only therapy that the, that's offered is a ketogenic diet, and it restores fuel flow to the brain so the child can live a normal life, right? So even in the, in the presence of a persistent molecular pathology, uh, like the, the glucose transporter deficiency, and we know the cause, we've identified the gene and the protein product. So even in the presence of that persistent molecular pathology, 
the ketogenic diet can completely like silence the symptoms of that disease. And it's doing that by restoring homeostasis in the brain. Like the neuro, not only the energy to the brain, but the neurotransmitter levels are restored. There's a balance of uh, glucose or uh, of, of uh, glutamate to GABA. So the GABA levels are restored. And I think that's what's happening too when it, when it comes to sleep. So we know if we do uh, a cerebral, you know, uh, CSF, uh, the cerebral uh, fluid of the, of the brain and people that are on a ketogenic diet, it shows that there's a higher GABA to glutamate ratio. So glutamate is excitatory, whereas GABA is kind of like inhibitory. It's kind of like the chilling out uh, neurotransmitter. So there's various things out there that you can take, like fenibut or um, or GABA. You know that can that you can take before bed helps you sleep. So the ketogenic diet elevates these things naturally. So that may be offering some sleep promoting potential. But I, I do think that being in a state of ketosis and getting having ketones elevated and having them available for your brain. Uh, can enhance your restorative processes that, that occur when you're sleeping in the brain. So I am looking uh, to shift gears a little bit. I'm looking at some goodies that I'm I'm making a cocktail with in front of me, and I've been I've been fasting since I got up, and it's about one thirty my time, and I can feel my brain starting to get a little grumpy, even though I'm in ketosis, and uh, so I. I Inspired by our conversation, I have Keto Sports, Keto Kenna, Calcium and Sodium, yeah. Beta-Hydroxybutyrate. And the label says, Dietary Ketone Supplement for Enhanced Physical and Mental Performance. Um, this one is not for resale for R&D use only, so this is, must be an early one. Um, and then I have the branched-chain amino acids. Uh, and then I have a Perillo MCT oil, Captri, mm-hmm. which is uh, yeah. the caprylic acid. Um now, on the side of the calcium and sodium, sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketokana, um, they have the directions, you know, consume 15 minutes prior to cardio-intensive exercise, may be used with carbohydrate supplements if desired, blah, blah, blah. Do not exceed three servings per day. So I want, I want to ask you about the, the risks or toxicity of consuming uh, exogenous ketones. And, and part of the reason I'm wondering is because I think of consuming these while on a standard American diet or a high carbohydrate diet. And it just seems like a very unnatural combination to me, but I could be totally off. Uh, so I'd love for you to just to talk about the, Mm -hmm. the toxicity risks or other risks associated with exogenous ketones. Okay. Uh, so it says do not exceed three servings per day. So you will, you will, the, the GI intolerance will far exceed sort of the the biological intolerance that you'll get. So your body will stop you through diarrhea before you get close to anything that'll hurt you. Is that exactly? I mean, that's the same thing with MCT, right? You're limited by your ability to you know transport it across the gut. Uh, so the mineral load that you would get from <clears throat> the Keto Cana product would uh, would you know cause an osmotic you know, uh, issue in the gut and, uh, it's great, you know, if you want to stay regular. So it's, it stimulates peristalsis in the gut. Um, so you'll, you'll, um, get that side effect 
probably if you exceed for me, I could probably do up to five or six servings a day and, and be okay. Um, but as far as toxicity, and this is where we can draw off some of the, the rat studies we're doing. We just finished a 15 week, uh, study in rats. And it's like equivalent to like, you know, a year or two years in humans where we fed a variety of ketone supplements from esters to the salts to combinations thereof at 25 grams per kilogram uh, per day. Uh, so that, that's, that's really high, right? So we did that. This is part of the uh, toxicology studies that we are doing, you know, to get FDA approval for different things. And uh, so they actually just required 2.5 grams per kilogram per day. Well, I was like, well, let's, let's increase that tenfold. And we, we formulated it. I come at this from the FDA, you know, may see this as a drug, but I see ketones as a, a, a fourth macronutrient, right? You have, you have fats, you have proteins and carbs. Ketones are an energy containing uh, molecule and uh, they're like water soluble fat molecules. So we formulated them into the diet and we fed it. We fed uh, our rodent models this, and we did clinical chemistry. We were doing metabolomics. We do histology. We do. Uh, we did. We had, we did actually some uh, some anxiety studies. What is where, hist- uh, histology? I'm sorry. Oh, histology is where we at the end of the study we harvest all the organs, right? Like the kidneys, the liver, and and heart, and everything, and we weigh them out, and then we take the organs and then we uh, we basically treat them in a way where we can section them and make slices of them and look at the cells. So we can look at the liver, for example, or the kidneys, and then we can examine at the level of the mitochondria inside the cells. We can examine these cells to determine whether the agent that we administered caused any uh, toxicity to the animal, to the organs. Got it. And, you know, if there was toxicity, we would be able to pick it up most likely in the clinical chemistry, which we've done that. And we've also, on top of clinical chemistry and the histology, we also looked at all the, about 27 different types of cytokines. Um, and we, we didn't see anything relative to the control, whether relative to the standard rodent chow, there were no abnormalities in, uh, to indicate liver or kidney stress. And uh, on top of that, we did kind of parallel to this in the same group. We and that was at the that was at twenty five. What was it? Twenty five grams. Twenty five grams per kilogram. <laughs> so in, <laughs> instead of delivering it like they do in drug studies with one dose, we formulated it into the diet. So we figured out like how much, how much, how many grams of food the animal ate, and then we took that and we formulated it in a way that we know that if they ate this amount of grams per food a day, they would be getting this amount. So instead of getting it at a big dose once a day, they would eat it, they'd nibble on it throughout the day. Got it. And uh, it was, you know, and that's kind of a more realistic way to give it instead of doing like most drug studies or even food studies are done with food additives. They just so, give it in a, in a bolus. So is the, and uh, I didn't sorry. see anything. So, okay. No, so there's, there's no negative effects. So you haven't observed any toxicity then, uh, no, no known toxicity. Like there's no, no there's no like LD 50 of, um, sorry, um, lethal dose 50, like the a dose that'll kill 50% of the subjects or anything like that, or produce some nasty effect. You guys just haven't observed it. 
Not when administered that way. So in taking a step back, if we were to give 25 grams per kilogram as a single dose of our most potent ketone ester, that would cause ketoacidosis in the rats for sure. Got it. Because we, we, you know, got, and then they would, uh, that would be hard to reverse actually. But that would be such a, I don't even think that volume is, is possible. I think, uh, the IACUC wouldn't even allow us to administer that dose because the volume would be so high for the stomach. Right. You know what I mean? So I don't, so it would be really, really high. So we haven't seen any, any side effects at doses that would even approach, you know, kind of what's on the label there. And, uh, and you have to figure when these things are ingested, it's bioidentical to what our body makes anyway. And even if we eat uh, an egg or a piece of, if we eat, you know, muscle from an animal that's in ketosis, we're getting ketones, you know, exogenous ketones. We're just not getting it at the level that would really put us into ketosis. Although I think milk, there's some, there's some ketones in milk and different products that could kind of boost your, uh, your ketone levels a little bit. So we, we sort of looked into that when, uh, we were trying to understand for FDA regulations, are ketones in, in our food? And yes, they are in our food if an animal's in ketosis and we're eating, we're drinking milk from an animal or the meat from an animal that's in ketosis. We're technically consuming exogenous ketones. So the, the, uh, are there any unusual foods or beverages or anything that increase ketone levels dramatically in animals or humans that you've seen. So for, I'll give you an example, and this could be complete, uh, this could be complete, well, it is speculation, but it could be com- just completely erroneous. So, um, I've gotten a bunch of my friends kind of hooked on using the precision extra device to track their, their millimolar levels. And some of them have really gone kind of nuts where they're, they're taking five to 10 readings a day and so on. Uh, and one of them observed, this is Kevin Rose, uh, that artichokes seemed to spike ketone levels. Uh, and he replicated it for himself, I think two or three times. I've been doing some experimentation with it, but I was like, huh, interesting because you know, artichoke extract, I've seen it used uh, as a, uh, what is it? PDE4 inhibitor, um, uh-huh. to, uh, because PDE4 breaks down cyclical AMP, <clears throat> as far as I understand, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but is there any, I mean, you could talk to artichoke specifically, but I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but is, are there any foodstuffs or things that people can use to jack up ketone levels besides exogenous ketones or, you know, MCT oil, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's an interesting observation. Um, with the artichoke, artichokes, you know, mostly fiber really. And I guess that, that could lead into the next question, right? Soluble fiber breaks down into short chain fatty acids, which are ketotic. Uh, so I, I was actually at, uh, at NASA a few weeks ago and it was, brought to my attention by uh, a former astronaut, uh, Rick Linehan, who's also a vet, that cows are ketotic and that they, um, and this gets back to your sort of the thing we were talking about, about short chain fatty acids being uh, formed from the breakdown of soluble fiber. 
and short-chain fatty acids uh, can uh, can be, you know, a form of ketones, uh, can, can contribute to ketogenesis. And, and also, uh, also the generation of butyrate in the gut, so which can enhance and um, contribute to uh, our gut microbiota. So, um, yeah, so I think that needs to be appreciated that we were talking about foods that right. could enhance um, ketosis. And, and I think that one could formulate a ketogenic diet with... Uh, the intention to further enhance ketosis by adding certain types of fiber, uh, soluble fiber that are broken down into short chain fatty acids, which are potentially ketogenic. Like your friend that had the artichoke and had a big bump in ketones. That's really interesting. Uh, I, I love artichokes and maybe that's why <laughs> I get levels of, so I'm, I'm looking at the macronutrient profile of artichokes now. And I see that, yeah, they're primarily carbohydrate, but mostly fiber. Mm. And that, that fiber is, uh, can be ketogenic. And fiber can also assist in helping us stay in ketosis by being a buffer when they're eaten with protein because it helps slow the digestion, assimilation, and utilization of protein. So you get less of a spike in amino acid levels, which can help uh, a spike, a quick spike in amino acid levels can like shut off ketogenesis. And if you attenuate that spike, it can help promote your body into staying in that, in that, that state of ketosis longer by. Is this, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is the spike knocking you out of ketogenesis because the liver is using gluconeogenesis to convert those amino acids into glucose or is it something else entirely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, if you get <clears throat> too many amino acids getting into the liver as a source of fuel for gluconeogenesis, but also protein can stimulate uh, a release of insulin, and insulin is uh, very anti-ketogenic. So it's a combination of uh, attenuating the rise in uh, in amino acids, which will attenuate the rise in glucose, which will attenuate the uh, bump in in uh, insulin that you could potentially get from that. Yeah. So so fibers are pretty. Fiber is actually really useful. What would uh, be good sources of fiber that aren't going to that are going to have very low net carbs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think the staple ones that I like are actually artichoke is on that list. Uh, spinach, kale, uh, broccoli, uh, asparagus is probably at the top of my list, mm-hmm. uh, celery a little bit. Uh, so any kind of green leafy vegetables like salad, I have a salad every night and with mixed greens and, um, a lot of olive oil. Uh, and you know, take your, always eat your, your vegetables with a source of fat. I think it helps promote that you getting the most nutrition out of the vegetables, um, and also if you mix your food so you're eating your protein with, you know, obviously high fat and fiber will definitely help you stay in ketosis because um, if you just bolus protein, uh, a lot of people say they're on a ketogenic diet just by eating like no carbs, but uh, like a 
a chicken breast will quickly kick you out of ketosis, <laughs> but a chicken breast cut up into a green leafy salad with a lot of olive oil and maybe some feta cheese and, you know, and, a and some bulletproof coffee or something like that combined will, will not kick you out of ketosis. You can just stay cruising in ketosis. So th- this is, I think needs to be appreciated. So, if you're, so I, just to fill in the blank, yeah. the, the blanks for your sort of typical day, then if your breakfast is, uh, sardines, half a can of oysters, four eggs, and then some asparagus or some other green. What are the rest of your meals for a, a typical day? Okay. Uh, I do get a lot of uh, MCT in, in the day. and uh, so Those are just tablespoons uh, of MCT oil or the powdered MCT oil? I have the... I have the powder and the oil sometimes. And uh, I cook in coconut oil. And I'll cook with a, a combination coconut oil and butter. So I'll put a pat of butter with like a spoonful of oil in a pan and cook my eggs in that. And uh, and I will – the sardines, if I have sardines in the morning, it's in packed in extra virgin olive oil, which I, I like a lot of. Uh, I was eating a lot of dairy fat and I noticed uh, my LDL went like really high and my LDL particle number went up. And that's kind of like a whole nother conversation, but uh, I was kind of doing an experiment on myself. So I haven't phased out dairy completely, but I backed off on it a little bit and been using uh, more coconut cream in place of regular cream. Uh, So yeah, so in the morning, I kind of described my breakfast already, but at nighttime, uh, what I like to have would be uh i always have a salad so you don't you, so you're skipping breakfast and having intermittent mct oil instead or i'm sorry you're skipping lunch and having yeah mm-hmm. yeah and um when i have my breakfast i will make i'll have a cup of coffee but i have a thermos that i bring with me to work and in that thermos i cut a stick of butter in half and throw it in it and then i <laughs> and then i put a scoop or two scoops of mct powder and then i pour the rest of my coffee that i make in uh, french press in that and then i just kind of shake it up or zip it up um, so it's all mixed up and then i bring that with me to work and that's the coffee that i sip on throughout the day and it's basically i make like three cups of coffee it's not super strong probably less strong than like starbucks coffee or something but i have like you know one cup in the morning and then like two equivalent cups in my thermos and sometimes i'll brew a a, uh, a cup of coffee uh you know at work or uh i have a, a product that my friend makes uh it's called utopian uh it's a really good product by de novo nutrition i'll do that instead of coffee and then i'll what is utopian if I, Oh, Utopian. Oh, there's a company. My friend has a company called De Novo Nutrition. How do you spell uh, that? Uh, De Novo is spelled D-E-N-O-V-O. Oh, that's okay. Got it. <laughs> like, yeah, like made De Novo, you know. Um, so De Novo Nutrition makes uh, some really interesting products. Uh, and I'm really particular about products that I use. And the one product that they have is called Utopian, and uh, they also sell probably the highest, you know, quality uh, whey protein too. But Utopian is a product that I use sparingly. I have it packed in my bag now because I'll be traveling in Europe, uh, and it's it's basically like a cognitive enhancement agent 
that also promotes sort of a well-being and you might call it a, you know, it's a mild nootropic and a mild stimulant. And it's just got some standard things in it, like cuprazine. You might sure. be familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, the uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, right? Yeah. Cuprazine. Yeah, like it has that. It's got like five ingredients that are formulated really well that uh, enhance acetylcholine transmission, enhance dopamine. Uh, there's a, just enough caffeine to give like a stimuli, I think about 100 milligrams of caffeine. And it's just, it's a good product to, that I keep on hand. Um, and it's, it's form, a lot of thought went into the formulation of it. So with the ratios of mm-hmm. things. So, uh, so I definitely, it's, if you're looking for a, a, a lift, a boost, a sort of a nootropic, uh, utopian is definitely something that I keep at the corner of my desk and I use it kind of sparingly, but I'll yep. use it a couple times a month. And then, uh, what is, and dinner is a large salad. What is a, a large salad? What does the salad composition look like for you? Yeah. Uh, I usually get like mixed greens, uh, like two or three different types of salads, uh, like usually spinach, a mixed green and two different types of mixed green bag salads. And I mix them together and, uh, I get like a good quality extra virgin olive oil and, uh, and I will, uh, what else did I put in it? Uh, artichokes actually, uh, avocado, artichokes, uh, olive oil. And I make, I put MCT oil on as salad dressing too. And so I'll make a salad and maybe a little bit of, uh, Parmesan cheese on it or feta. And we have typically like, uh, chicken, you know, which would have the skin on it, beef or fish. And it's usually like the fattiest versions that we can get. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, and I don't go too over, too overboard on the protein like I used to. Uh, so pretty moderate amount of protein, maybe about 50 grams of protein. And then, uh, some kind of five zero. Yeah, like 50 grams. That would be like my bolus, like probably the one of the larger protein meals. And if I work out, if I happen to work out, which I did yesterday, I would probably eat a little bit more, maybe about 60 or, or like 70 or 80 grams of protein. And that'll be kind of like my larger meal of the day. And uh, and then for I'll have a salad, some kind of fatty protein. And uh, last night I cooked... Uh, Brussels sprouts, and I kind of cut them in half face down and cook them in butter and olive oil. No, butter and coconut oil. So they suck it up. <laughs> and so it's, I think of vegetables as like a fat delivery system. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> same thing with like collard greens or asparagus. Like they're usually cooked in a lot of butter, olive oil, coconut oil. And I'll have that. So I'll have some kind of fatty protein some kind of vegetable cooked in fat and, um, and salad. Got it. And then I always have dessert that's kind of unique, actually. It's, uh, I call it my, I don't know, keto mousse or keto ice cream. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what it essentially is, is uh, it could be sour cream or coconut cream. And I take sour cream. So the easiest thing, take sour cream or coconut cream and take maybe about a cup of it or two cups, mm-hmm. cup and a half. And then I put a tablespoon of dark chocolate baking powder in it, some cinnamon, a pinch of salt and stevia and stir it up until it's like a, 
uh, a thick mousse and then I stick it in the freezer and then I go kind of do my things and, you know, shower, get ready for the day or whatever. And then I take it out and, um, the freezer or refrigerator and it, and it's basically like ice cream to me. Amazing. And so, so it's sour, one cup sour cream, one tablespoon dark chocolate powder. Yeah. That's right. A uh, pinch of salt. St- how much stevia? Stevia, uh, just sweeten it to whatever you like. I mean, I put, uh, I have the super concentrated stevia, so I just put like, uh, like literally a pinch of it what, in there. What brand do you use? Do you know offhand? Uh, uh, I have to go back and look at the brand, but you can get it on Amazon if you just go to bulk stevia powder, and it comes in like a two-pound or one-pound container. Got it. And it's uh, yeah, it's kind of like the generic. I've tried like every brand of stevia, and this is it's powder. It's it's pretty good. It travels well and everything and too. Cinnamon, cool. Uh, yeah, a little bit of cinnamon, and it's like a fat bomb. So yeah. <laughs> so people ask like, where do you get all your 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 fat? You know, because there's a lot, of, a lot of fat to eat to get in about 300 grams of fat a day. Um, for the diet. So yeah, so that, that's like a fat bomb. It's about how <laughs> grams of fat, I think. And you know what, if I eat that at nighttime and if I work out or if I haven't gotten like any carbohydrates during the day, I usually put in, uh, like a third of a cup or even a half cup of a uh, wild blueberries, mm-hmm. which are like higher in fiber, not real sweet, but higher in fiber. And I stir that into it. And, and sometimes I'll do like, you know, like it'll pre- be a pretty big bowl. I'll do like two cups of coconut cream or two cups of sour cream. So I was doing a lot of, I, was, I have a, a whipped cream maker that I put heavy cream in and, uh, and I would put whipped cream on top of that. And I would, in my whipped cream maker, I would put the heavy cream in and then I put stevie in. So I'd sweeten the whipped cream a little bit, you know, shake it up and charge it with a little, little things that they have and make my own whipped cream. And I'd put whipped cream on top of that, so <laughs> like a hundred gram fat bomb. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I was getting in extra fat throughout the day with heavy cream. And I did an experiment because I wanted to determine what, what happens if you have surplus amount of calories in the form of dairy fat. And if I did that for two weeks, so I got like a thousand extra calories per day, 500 to a thousand extra calories per day for two weeks. Then I went in and got like an, an NMR, you know, lipidomic profile of, of everything. Um, and it really shot up some things remarkably like my LDL P particle. And I'm still analyzing it right now. I'm kind of still doing experiments on myself, but I, I went back and I did, I cut out the dairy and I replaced it with coconut cream and all those numbers came back down. Um, so I've, I've, but I still get, uh, I still get dairy in the form of butter and I just don't go too overboard with it. Uh, cause people ask me that question a lot. Like, can I have dairy? And, and I do have dairy every day, but I've, I've switched out my, um, my, my nighttime snack, uh, switched out the sour cream to either a mix of sour cream and coconut cream together. And sour cream is really not sour, right? I mean, especially if you ha- I buy the uh, dark chocolate baking cocoa, the extra dark, and it's a little bit bitter. And if you add it to it, it sort of neutralizes any remote little sourness that sour cream has. And it makes a really delicious chocolate mousse. I'll and it's like that. purely ketogenic. 
And, oh, yeah, I also will take a tablespoon of coconut oil, and especially if it has the frozen blueberries in it. And if I drizzle it around and stir it up, the coconut oil will sort of harden and make these little crunchy chocolate things. So it actually tastes like you have chocolate chips in there, if that makes sense. You yeah. Know, coconut oil. Yeah. So uh, and then so my fiance is totally not ketogenic. I mean, she has an enormous carbohydrate tolerance and she just thinks what I do is really strange. But if I make this and she's a big fan of regular like Breyers or Haagen-Dazs chocolate and if I give this to her, she thinks it's incredible. So even <laughs> someone who's not not ketogenic and doesn't eat this way and has a sweet tooth thinks this is really good. So Cool. I'll try it out. So I um, would love to ask some rapid fire questions. I know we're wrapping up. We could talk for many more hours, but yeah. uh, if for people who want to dig into ketosis further, give it a shot, what resources should they start with or books should they start with? Yeah, I think probably the best place to go would be Ketogenic Diet Resource. And that's a website. Uh, Ellen Davis has that website. And literally, that's the name of it, ketogenicdietresource.com. And uh, it's like a ton of information on there. Pretty much every question you'd ever want on there. We even, she uh, put together a book for ketogenic diet and cancer, one for the ketogenic diet for type 2 diabetes. It was co-authored by a doctor uh, that's actually in my area that has type 1 diabetes that uses the ketogenic diet for that. So that's an incredible resource. Excellent. Ellen uh, Davis. Yeah, Ellen Davis, ketogenic diet resource. Definitely one of the go-to places. I have a website, ketonutrition.org, and I've basically it's like a skeleton website. It's compiled a lot of um, useful links that I thought, and her website's on there, her book's on there. Um, so that's ketonutrition.org. Awesome. What um, what is the book you've given most as a gift? Not necessarily related to ketosis, just. Any book that you've given often or given before as a gift? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I would have to. Well, going back in the college days, I would say uh, Anthony Robbins. I listened to his stuff when I was my senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened to like this 30-day tapes. back when oh, the personal power? Tapes. Yeah, personal power. Yeah. So I bought the book too. And then. I liked it so much, like I bought it and I gave it to all my lifting buddies, you know, and, and they, and then I didn't, you know, they went off to college and everything. And years later, like two of them contacted me and they're like, you know, that book you gave me, it changed my life. You know, I did better in college and everything. So I would say Anthony, going way back, personal power, Anthony Robbins book yeah. was, was kind of influential from, you know, back in the day. And, uh, and then as I, you know, got into science and became a scientist and my advisor was, uh, funded by the NIH and I was always told that I needed NIH funding to be a career scientist. And, uh, then I met the NIH director, Francis Collins at Society for Neuroscience meeting. And I was like, well, I should understand the mind of Francis Collins and understand, you know, what is the director of basically the president of science thinking. So I, I went to try to find some biographies on him. And when I did a search, I found a book, uh, The Language of God. And I thought, you know, that was really, I didn't, I had no idea of his sort of uh, 
his spirituality or his kind of worldview besides outside of science. I know he spearheaded the Human Genome Project and was pretty instrumental in finding the gene for uh, cystic fibrosis. But so the language of God, like it's, it really ins- inspired me because I had no idea that a scientist uh, of his stature was, you know, could be, have such a devout faith. And, and that kind of influenced me and it got me to reread some older books I read uh, by C.S. Lewis, uh, mm-hmm. Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is great. Yeah, yeah, Screwtape Letters is really good. So, uh, and I, I don't think I've given that to, but I, I've gave the the language of God to uh, some of my friends and they really enjoyed it. So that would be one. Uh, and then a required reading for my students would be Tom Seyfried's book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Mm. So that that's a really, I mean, I think it's sold pretty well on Amazon. Uh, and it's highly, highly technical. And it's unfortunately, it's like really expensive. <laughs> so it's about 100 to 130 bucks, I think. Maybe wow. you can get it cheaper. You can get used versions for probably like 50 bucks online. But if you want a really good kind of description of, I guess, cancer as a metabolic disease, the science, the history, I mean, it's really well written. Tom uh, did. He's a he's a collaborator of mine. He he worked a, a lot on that book, and it's it shows. So that book, uh, and oh, another book by a guy that I'm actually working uh, on a project with him now. Uh, his name is Travis Christofferson. He wrote a book called "Tripping Over the Truth." Hmm. So like, tripping. Like the name. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote a precursor to the book. He wrote an article that was appeared on uh, Rob Wolf's blog. And uh, I'm actually, I have an article written with him that's going to appear on the blog on uh, Thursday. It's about the history of the ketogenic diet. And I think Rob's going to put it on the blog on, on Thursday, I believe. But uh, Travis is a brilliant, he's probably one of the most gifted writers I've ever known. So Tripping Over the Truth is basically the story of uh, the story of cancer, really. I mean, it's a, it's a great history of uh, the story of cancer that comes at it from a different perspective from the Mukherjee book, uh, which is uh, the biography of cancer that uh, is pretty popular with New York Times bestseller. It's been on uh, the Emperor of All Maladies is actually the name of the book, The Biography of Cancer. Uh, that book is kind of talks about the history of cancer. Tripping Over the Truth is similar to Mukherjee's book, but viewed from the perspective of understanding cancer as more or less a metabolic disease and how we could uh, develop therapies you know, to target it from a metabolic perspective. So... And I've given that book, probably bought seven or eight copies of that book over the last year and given it away. And everybody has come back to me and said that book was fantastic. I mean, not only is it informative, but Travis is like an unbelievable gifted writer. Awesome. Let me, let me ask you one, I have, I have one more question and uh, then maybe we'll do a round two if, if people demand it by uh <laughs> popular request sure. but um you mentioned rob so rob and i are friends rob wolf and we've talked about lyme yeah. disease on and off for a while now because i was i was out of commission for about nine months or at least operating at about 10 percent capacity yeah. after contracting lyme disease on eastern long island and 
the the what appears to have made the biggest difference for me in terms of getting back to feeling like myself and having the cognitive function that I had pre Lyme disease was the ketogenic diet. And mm-hmm. I was very puzzled by this and I wasn't sure exactly why that would be the case. And so I, I just I hypothesized that perhaps uh, either Lyme disease or the, the subsequent antibiotic treatment caused some type of uh, carbohydrate metabolism dysfunction. And I was chatting with Rob about this because I, I didn't know the mechanism, but I had recommended to a few people with Lyme that they test ketosis and literally 100% of them, if they entered ketosis properly and stayed there for more than a week or two, reported the same results. And uh, Rob sent me an interesting um, research abstract, which showed how uh, antibiotics such as dox- doxycycline could cause mitochondrial dysfunction uh, mm-hmm. um, or degradation because it, 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 my understanding is that mitochondria are very similar to bacteria. Uh, and the how would you explain ketosis making me and these other people feel better after Lyme disease? And I don't know if you're familiar with Lyme disease, but yeah, is it yeah. is it a it is how would you approach thinking about that and investigating that? Well, I, I'm from New Jersey. Uh, so is really, you know, I knew a lot of people, especially growing up in a family that, you know, was hunters and knowing most of my friends were hunting and in the woods, I, I grew up in the woods. Uh, somehow I, 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 didn't get Lyme disease, uh, never been tested for it, but never really had any symptoms for it. So Lyme's disease really produces pretty profound inflammation and uh, the spirochetes can cause, you know, everything that you described, fatigue and, and uh, but I think they can cause, uh, you know, from a neurological perspective, they can cause encephalopathy and that essentially is resulting from neuroinflammation and ketones uh, the ketogenic diet and ketones in particular have pretty profound anti-inflammatory effects and especially in relation to the nervous system uh, since ketones are freely permeable to the blood-brain barrier and, and kind of bathe our nervous system. Uh, so I think that may have something to do with also the Spikes in blood glucose, higher insulin levels all can contribute to inflammation and inflammatory processes. So putting a dampening on that situation with a ketogenic diet and, you know, having elevated levels of ketones could impact the, uh, the primary, uh, malady that's causing the symptoms, which would be the inflammation, the, the encephalopathy, uh, the uh, the you know the inflammation of the white matter. I think there's you know memory uh, attention. Uh, you know cognitive emotional states are altered in people, and I think it can just help bring your nervous system back to a state of homeostasis, uh, similar to what it's doing for other disorders. But inflammation is really. Did did you happen to get blood work and look at because uh, the the spirochete 
really that's how it wreaks havoc in your system i mean by activating your immune system but also oh, yeah. just wreaking havoc you know as far as causing systemic inflammation in the body yeah i could go back you mean looking at things like c-reactive protein or whatever mm-hmm. yeah, yeah or cytokines I, or cytokines like i'm sure i have the blood work i mean my i the inflammation was so clear to me that I didn't really need the blood work to confirm it. I mean, my, my knees were so swollen that I could barely get up in the morning and I was, had very slow, almost slurred speech, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, felt like I had early onset dementia. It was really scary as an experience. What effect does ketosis have on mitochondria, if any? Yeah. So, uh, ketones are very efficient metabolic fuel and uh and in studies that were done in animal models and we're you know um looking at some the muscle biopsies too uh shows that if you're in a state of ketosis relative to a higher carbohydrate diet that it can increase mitochondrial biogenesis and mitochondrial efficiency uh at the level of the cell uh when we talk about efficiency um I don't want to get down into too much specifics, but there's the the electron transport chain is kind of how our cells, the mitochondria, make energy. And there's if there's a, a site between complex one and complex two and complex three called the semi ubiquinone site. And if you ketones have the ability to uh, oxidize Q basically, and that can prevent uh, by by uh, ketone metabolism can enhance the energetic flux through the mitochondria to produce ATP, our energy currency. And at the same time that it's enhancing uh, the bioenergetics of the mitochondria, it's also preventing the formation of superoxide anion, which is a oxygen-free radical or reactive oxygen species, and that's the precursor to more reactive oxygen species like uh, hydroxyl radical and peroxynitrate and things like that. So by kind of fundamentally, you know, turning down the generation of superoxide anion by enhancing mitochondrial efficiency, not only do we make more ATP uh, through ketone metabolism, but we're also enhancing the flux of of substrate utilization and energy production from that substrate, uh, even, even glucose substrate, uh, by, by enhancing mitochondrial bioenergetics and the ketones we know can do that through, uh, a variety of mechanisms that I can get into. But, uh, but basically, yeah, I mean, there, you can, you can derive more energy, um, per oxygen molecule Got it. Uh, with, uh, with ketone metabolism. Is it uh, conceivable that ketosis could aid? It sounded like the answer is yes. You mentioned biogenesis. If one had damaged their mitochondria through 8 to 12 weeks of doxycycline or even using harder antibiotics for longer periods of time, is it conceivable that the ketosis could help repair that damage? Yeah, yeah, I think so, especially uh, in certain tissues. You know, we know muscle is incredibly plastic, uh, but if you're exercising and in a state of ketosis, that you can you can build up your mitochondria, and you'll do that more efficiently if you're on a ketogenic diet. And I think 
even in the central nervous system, which may have taken a big hit from doxycycline or Lyme disease, uh, the central nervous system is running more efficiently uh, in a state of ketosis, I believe, especially if you can dampen uh, some of the neuroinflammation that's associated with uh, with the disease. Right. And I think, and I think that would ultimately, you know, contribute to. I don't know how you would quantify that, or uh, but we. I'm trying to think of studies that we've done sort of in parallel. We did some work in an Alzheimer's model, and I think that uh, the limes has been associated with tau and amyloid plaques and neuroinflammation that can contribute to those plaques. And I think being in a state of uh, ketosis, uh, even there's some work with exogenous ketones and calorie restriction, or even intermittent fasting type things, uh, can limit uh, the... Uh, the accumulation of some of these plaques that are associated with uh, with neuropathologies such as Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid and the tau plaques, mm-hmm. and and this can be shown in animal models that are genetically kind of predisposed to accumulating those plaques, and and I think that would be you know make it, you could probably draw some parallels from that work uh, with with the neuro inflammation and the neurotoxic effects that Lyme disease kind of has. And that's what, you know, I'm not, Lyme disease is not something that I study, but I just come across it a lot because hyperbaric oxygen has been used to sensitize sort of the, the uh, bacteria to the, to the antibiotics. So a lot of people ask me questions and I have to, and I have to go, I've, I've been staying up on top of the literature kind of in a peripheral sense, cause it's not my kind of core of study, but, uh, but everything that I read really focuses on, um, on the neuroinflammation that's resulting from the, from the spirochetes. So. Got it. Well, Dom, this is so much fun. There's so many other things that we could talk about. The hyperbaric oxygen treatment, uh, the, the, the brilliant Patrick Arnold we didn't have a chance to get into. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, not to mention your, your own training, uh, and the, the approach that you no doubt bring to that. So I will, I, I want to let you get going, and uh, if if fans enjoy this, then maybe we can do a, a part two sometime. But what is okay. the best what is the best way for people to find you online in terms of websites, social media? If they want to say hi to you online, what's the best way to do that? Okay, uh, I think probably the best way would be the keto nutrition website dot org, and I have that, and yeah, Facebook, and I probably use that more than Twitter. What are you on uh, Facebook? Uh, my Facebook handle, you mean, or yeah, your Facebook uh, handle. I could pull yeah. that up too. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I can put that in the show Let's notes see. if you don't recall it offhand. Yeah, I will. Yeah, it's it should be obvious, right? But uh, <laughs> I think it's yeah, oh wait, here Domin- it is. Dominic Dominic dot D'Agostino dot one. Got it. All right, so, uh, so I will link to this, guys. So Facebook is facebook dot com forward slash Dominic period d a g o s t i n o period one uh and i will link to all of this as well as your usf page in the show notes for so everyone listening can find links to many of the things that we talked about in this episode 
and more at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out, or just go to fourhourworkweek.com and click on podcast. But Dom, I really appreciate the time. I always love chatting. And uh, how much do you weigh these days? Way, uh, yeah. man, I haven't weighed myself in a while, but about two, I always stay between 220 and 230, probably about 222. So, yeah, so. Does that, is that ever a challenge? I found when I like for every additional millimeter of neck diameter that I have, my the perceived <laughs> IQ that people have of me drops by like five points. Do you ever have trouble being taken seriously by, by people who are not, uh, sort of <laughs> a, a nerd wrapped in a meathead body? Uh, I don't have that problem too much now just because, you know, I have my diet under control and kind of, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think sometimes I, I face that resistance a little bit. Um, but generally, you know, uh, it was a little bit more apparent when I was a younger scientist, but now that I'm, you know, working my way up and have a, have a lab, I think people are starting to take some of this stuff seriously. I, I am in a totally oddball area of research though, as far as, you know, being in a pharmacology department, doing this weird high fat diet stuff, it raises some eyebrows. So, uh, <laughs> so I feel like I kind of have to prove myself still. Uh, well, I think, uh, I would like to collaborate more in the future. We'll talk more about that, but okay. this is enough for, for one big session. So Dom, I really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you. Thanks and for having me, Tim. Of appreciate course. It. It was fun. This is a, a good fun. time. And uh, to everyone listening, as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, experiment, be well, check out the ketogenic diet. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, your one-stop shop for all things graphic design related. I have used 99designs for everything from banner ads to book covers, including sketches and mock-ups that led to the 4-Hour Body, which later became number one New York Times, number one Wall Street Journal. And the brainstorming, a lot of it took place with designers from around the world. And here's how it works. Whether you need a t-shirt, a business card, a website, an app thumbnail, whatever it might be, you submit that project and designers from around the world will send you sketches and mock-ups and designs. You choose your favorite and you have an original that you love or you get your money back. It's that straightforward. And many of you who are listening have already used it and created some amazing things that I'll be sharing in the future. But in the meantime, if you want to see some of my competitions, some of the book covers, 
as well as get a free $99 upgrade, go to 99designs.com forward slash Tim. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Audible, which I've used for years. I love audiobooks, and I have two to recommend right off the bat. Number one is perhaps my favorite audiobook of all time, and that is The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, the only audiobook I've wanted to immediately listen to a second time as soon as I finished. It's amazing. You will thank me. The Graveyard Book. The second is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which had a huge impact on my life and formed the basis for a lot of what became the four-hour work week. So all you need to do to get your free audiobook and a free 30-day trial is go to audible.com forward slash Tim, and you can choose one of those two books, The Graveyard Book, Vagabonding, or more than 180,000 audio programs. So that could be a book, that could be a magazine, that could be a newspaper, it could be a class. It's that easy. Go to audible.com forward slash Tim. That's audible.com forward slash Tim and grab a book. Enjoy. And until next time, thank you for listening.